to Medium Cool, a movie podcast. I'm your host, Austin Glidden, and as always, you can find us on social media at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter by searching Medium Cool Pod. That's facebook.com backslash Medium Cool Pod. You can search Medium Cool Pod on Instagram, and we will pop up. And at Medium Cool Pod on Twitter, you can also email us at uh, mediumcoolpod at gmail.com. You can find me at Austin Glidden on uh, Instagram and Twitter, um, you know, letterboxed. You can find me, Austin Glidden. Just hit me up. I would love to chat with you. Speaking of which, I actually had someone uh, hit us up on uh, Instagram and via email. It's uh, sorry if I'm mispronouncing your name, Nick, but uh, Nick Peticchio, I believe, is the name. I could be saying this wrong. I have no idea. He can correct me. Anyways, uh, Nick actually had a suggestion for us. So I'm going to be covering that here in a moment. But uh, today, this the day that this episode drops is Ethan Cohen's birthday. Yes, this is one half of the Cohen brothers. And I'm going to have uh, Joe Shearer on here, our old friend Joe, uh, here shortly. And we're going to talk about his pick, Fargo, and my pick, The Man Who Wasn't There. We'll talk a little bit more about why we picked those and and such. Uh, so we're going to be talking about Fargo and The Man Who Wasn't There, uh, both Cohen brothers' movies to celebrate Ethan Cohen's birthday. I'm also going to be doing solo review or a solo review for the uh, new James Wan film, uh, Malignant. So that's going to be happening today. Uh, I was going to do a couple more, uh, but I'm actually going to save it until next week just for one, the sake of time. And two, I've had a lot of stuff going on. Goodness gracious, folks. Yesterday, I was trying to take my daughter home and, and I meet her mom in Indianapolis. And we each live about an hour from Indy. So we meet like there, like halfway we exchange the kid, and then we go our own separate ways. And uh, my car broke down on the interstate as soon as I got on it. I mean, not even a quarter mile down the road. I could look in my rearview mirror, and I could see uh, the exit to you know that I had just got off, like onto uh, the interstate. So, anyways, it was like a whole day thing. And then today, my wife and I went to the uh, the dealership. We're like, hey, we're going to buy something, maybe. And then I like chickened out. There's a whole long story I don't feel like talking about on the show. But the point is, like, I was I was gung-ho, but then, like, a few things freaked me out. And I just need to confirm some financial stuff before I do it. And I freaked out. And I wasted two hours. And then we walked home because we didn't have a freaking car. And didn't want to pay for, like, a lift or anything. It's just the worst. Yesterday, I say yesterday because, you know. This drops on Tuesday, and I'm recording this on Monday. It happened today, the day I'm recording, of course. But anyways, yesterday, uh, this happened. My fucking knees hurt from walking. It's just awful. Anyways, the point is, I'm going to be talking about Malignant. <laughs> uh, and I wanted to talk about a couple others, but I just, I've just, i just had too much going on. Too, like, too many things, and I just couldn't prepare them, and I just didn't have enough time. But what I wanted to do, and I'm going to do this next week for next week's episode, uh, I, I wanted to cover a, uh, basically I wanted to start something called an, the Under the Radar Marathon. And basically, uh, it's something I've wanted to do for a while. I've had a list, a private list on Letterboxd of like just films I've been accumulating on it. And I wanted to pick a few of them to start as kind of a Under the Radar Part 1 kind of a thing. And I got for the first time a message on our social media by a uh, young man named Nick, uh, more specifically Nick Peticchio. I'm sorry if I misspoke, if I didn't say your name correctly. I believe that's how it's pronounced. 
So, uh, Mr. Nick here emails or emails us and uh, sends us an Instagram message, and he's like, "Hey, yo, there's this movie that I heard that I heard about. I'd never heard of it before, but once I heard about it, I went ahead and watched it, and it was actually really awesome. It's um, it's also Roger Avery, the co-writer of Pulp Fiction, and he did movies like Killing Zoe and stuff. Uh, but Roger Avery said it's his favorite film of 1988." So, uh, yeah, uh, you should check this out. I really strongly encourage you to do so. So, uh, it's called The Beast of War. I'd never heard of this in my life. Sincerely. So, I was just, like, super hyped. But you have to understand, this is really touching to me, too, because we've had a lot of feedback in the past. Like, people have talked about the show, and they've liked segments in the show. But, man, I have never had someone actually be like, hey, I want to hear your thoughts on this specific thing, you know? And so Nick getting a hold of us and telling us about this movie, which I have since watched, like I've seen it now. It's called The Beast of War. It is free on Amazon Prime right now. So if you have Amazon Prime, uh, go check it out. I encourage you to. I'll talk about it a little bit next week. Very interesting. I have a lot to say about it. Uh, I just don't have time on this episode to knock it out. And then um, I wanted to do this film too, but I'm going to have to do it next week. Uh, this coming Saturday is Spanish filmmaker Pedro Almodovar's 72nd birthday, Saturday the 25th. And so I wanted to kind of uh, two bird with one stone at thing, two birds with one stone. I wanted to uh, knock out an Almodovar film, but also find one of his films that I would consider under the radar. And this might have been the first Almodovar film I had actually watched uh, back in 2005. Uh, but it's called Bad Education from 2004 is when it was released. And uh, I got a rated R, like, um, censored copy from Blockbuster back then. And I uh, I had the film. I watched it. I had never seen the complete uncut version. I finally watched it uh, to celebrate Amadovar's birthday. But also, I would consider it an under-the-radar since I've literally heard no one ever talk about this movie. And it's actually really good. I'll talk about that next week as well. Um, but, hey, this under-the-radar marathon, I'm also calling, a.k.a. the Nick Paticcio Appreciation Marathon. Thank you so much, Nick, for... Uh, sending us that request, uh, it really did mean a lot. It was, it was, it was really good, and I'm so. It was a fun movie. I'm glad that you told me to check it out. I can't wait to talk about it. Uh, so stay tuned for that marathon next week. I'm supposed to be talking to Greg Sorvig. Uh, Greg works for the Heartland Film Festival. He's also on the. Uh, he also works with so many others, like uh, the. Tribeca Film Festival, and I think he had something to do with the Telluride Film Festival. All kinds of film festivals all over this guy's a part of. But the Heartland Film Festival is a big one for him. They just released their uh, program, basically, of what they're going to be screening for the festival. We're going to talk with him next week and talk about a lot of new movies coming out and some of the stuff that he's seen at the festivals that he's been a part of, and uh, it's going to be great fun. So anyways, uh, this week, though, we're going to be focusing on the Coens, and we're gonna, I'm going to talk here in just a moment about James Wan's new horror movie uh, that came out September 10th. It's called Malignant. Uh, I'm just going to go ahead and jump into that now. Thanks for sticking with me here. I need to get all that off my chest. Uh, let's go see about Malignant.
All right, everybody, let's talk about James Wan's new film, Malignant. came out uh, this year, September 10th, 2021. It was written by James Wan, the director, uh, and also Ingrid Basu and Akela Cooper. Uh, the cast is Annabelle Wallace, Maddie Hansen, George Young, Jacqueline McKenzie, and Michelle Brianna White. Uh, it had a budget of $40 million and is about Madison, who is paralyzed by shocking visions of grisly murders, and her torment worsens as she discovers that these waking dreams are, in fact, terrifying realities. And th this film feels very modern, uh, but it does definitely harken back to some older horror movies. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But let's first talk about what this film actually is. James Wan started off with his films like Saw from 2004 or his two 2007 movies, Dead Silence and Death Sentence. Uh, you know, this dude went on to make Insidious in 2010, which I thought was actually really cool, but it's a complete mess. And uh, one of my favorite recent horror movies, I believe it was my 11 through 15 during our top 15 horror movies uh, that we did almost a year ago now, guys. That's so crazy. But anyways, the movie is The Conjuring from 2013. And I felt like Juan really matured with these latter two films. And uh, with The Conjuring especially, you know, he made something that feels classic and is simultaneously, you know, very modern. And it's just a really good blend, I thought. And, you know, Juan then starts a new chapter in his career and starts directing some, uh, you know, sequels and things like that, like Furious 7, uh, from 2015 from the Fast and the Furious franchise or in the DCEU like the film Aquaman from 2018, uh, this dude is all over the place. And I'd be a geek if I said that he wasn't getting over. You know, people like his work and he's positioned himself in a really good way to be a rising studio star, regardless of how I feel about most of his work. So with all that context, I have you know, a hit or miss relationship with James Wan. And I think that he usually ignores subtlety for blatant and telegraph techniques. This is like one of my criticisms of this guy. So he often uses cool techniques for no perceivable reason other than just to be cool, which can honestly just be really distracting at times, like distracting even if it's like, oh man, that's a really cool shot. <clears throat> but it takes you out of what's happening. I'm making a point with all this, so bear with me here. And he's over the top in many ways, but not in the same ways that the films he loves from the 70s and 80s are over the top. You know, Juan uh, obviously loves those classic horror movies, and it's very clear here in his new film, Malignant. But, you know, he he clearly loves uh, things like the Italian Gallo films, uh, Dario Argento, who was also a part of the Gallo stuff, but also did his own thing. Uh, you know, Frank Hennenlotter, uh, David Cronenberg, even, even a dash of someone like Sam Raimi, maybe. And, uh, you know, there's there's a, a shot in Malignant that is directly taken from an Australian under-the-radar horror film, which we'll talk about in my under-the-radar marathon, called Next of Kin from 1982, which is an Australian horror film, like I said. Uh, and as an Australian filmmaker, like James Wan is, I'm sure that he has seen and probably really loves that movie. Now, there is uh, a lot in this film, and on that level, I had a fun time with Malignant, despite my my criticisms, having all of that like Yellow films, Dario Argento, Frank Henenlotter, Cronenberg, Raimi, like all of these crazy uh, influences, it was actually pretty fun to kind of tear that apart and find those things. Now, the Cronenberg side of it, the body horror side, comes out in about the last third of the film mostly, and it's pretty wild, I have to admit. Uh, I love the idea of what this film does, just like that kind of 
Cronenberg body horror stuff. It's gruesome and weird. It's, you know, has a bizarre twist, so to speak. And, you know, I still think, in theory, it's all awesome. Uh, But the film is violent and gruesome in the best ways, yes. And the concept is intriguing, yes. However, and you all knew that was coming, execution is everything. And like Groundhog Day, which has no comparison to this film, uh, the movie, but like Groundhog Day to me, uh, this film feels very redundant. At, you know, for, for at least the first half of the film, uh, I feel like there's a lot of the same kind of uh, thematic stuff going on. So, you know, normally I would praise a film for, quote, trimming the fat, so to speak. Uh, and, you know, having a lean film where every scene counts, but it's like, let the film breathe a bit, homie. You know, this film just keeps moving and moving and moving, but I feel like all of these movements, you know, all of these scenes, not all of them matter. Like, this isn't as important, or if it is, it needs to be executed in a different way so it feels important. The film never has a moment outside of its plot to let the characters be characters or to give any weight to anything that's happening. Now, I get it. Some people will like it. And they'll be like, dude, just have a good time. Who cares? It's fun. But the problem is the film doesn't let me have as much fun as I want to have. Who cares about the protagonist, Madison? Kill her. I don't care. Why would I? She's a paper-thin character. If the effects and stuff looked cool, I'd be down and would probably love this. Uh, But nothing looks that cool in the movie. In my opinion, nothing looks that cool. Uh, There are a few parts that look pretty cool, but nothing looks that cool. Why? Because they rely too heavily on CG effects, and the CG's not done that well, and that's the key. You can do it well. This is not one of those examples. Uh, I think, personally, the special effects look mostly awful, but I'm also a severe critic of modern-day CG-driven horror, okay? So keep that you know, pinch of salt there. Uh, but I think the I think the special effects largely look awful and not in a good way like 80s practical effects can. You know, everything seems telegraphed. You always know when something is, you know, when it's going to happen and it never gives room for true tension. So for the entire running time of the film, I never actually felt tense at all. It was just kind of watching something kind of cool. Uh, plus, you know, part of the scares is a CG thing, all right, there's like the CG form or whatever, and it looks so dumb. So it's hard to feel much during these moments, okay? Now, on Letterboxd, the site that I always encourage you guys to go check out, critic Matt Singer, who's, you know, a popular critic, he said, me, 20 minutes in, really, this is it? Me, 80 minutes in, lolololol, yes, absolutely, please never end. Um... The thing I love about Matt Singer's quote here is this is really how it goes. <laughs> I mean, I wanted it to end eventually, but uh, he's he's got a point here. You know, I was inclined to rate this film higher than I did because the ending is wild and I enjoyed that despite how completely and outrageously stupid the plot had become by then. It's almost like Cabin in the Woods, which I'm going to get flack for this, I'm sure, because people seem to love that movie, Cabin in the Woods. I think that movie is super boring and way overrated, and they tried to do something new with it, and although they did have a 
you know, unique concept or plot. Unique is not even a good word. I wouldn't even go that far. It's overpraise. Um, but they had a a, a semi innovative plot. Uh, nothing was interesting until the end to me with Cabin in the Woods. And the last 30 minutes is, I remember it at least, being awesome. And that's what this movie reminded me of, actually. You know, it's tolerable. I wouldn't call it good. Uh, <laughs> uh, but it's tolerable in large part because of this ending. Because the ending is fun. and uh, But the film itself is predictable and average. It's, uh, you know, comparable and better than a lot of... Uh, what we get in modern horror, but quite frankly, the bar's pretty low, so that's not really saying much. But remember just a second ago when I mentioned how outrageously stupid the plot is? Uh, <laughs> um, the writing is just overall mediocre here, okay? Uh, the dialogue feels very phony. There is a lot of that, you know, uh, no one would ever do that type stuff uh, where a normal human would run out the fucking door. These characters just do the opposite. Um, and, and I know that's kind of a, become a common trope, and I hate that about it, because it's like almost become this kind of like funny thing you do, uh, and I, it, it's still just very annoying to me. Just do the right thing. Like, just do something more interesting. Do something I could see myself doing and make a villain that can still get you. You know, that, that's kind of what I liked about like the movie Scream, for example. Whenever the bad guy shows up, people fucking run, and it's like, tripping over shit and it's like trying to get these people it's just done well anyways i'm getting worked up the point is uh you know uh, the biggest sin that the film does is that uh the film turns on itself two-thirds in and the plot literally makes no sense i mean you know you can go with it and suspend your disbelief and you know roll your eyes and simultaneously roll with the punches and uh you know, go far enough to, quote, get it, right? Uh, but it's silly to the point that I really, really don't like it. The plot part, again, the end is fun, but by that point, the plot's so fucked, you're just kind of watching it. It's like watching a U like a fun YouTube video. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. It's just like a thing. So uh, it uses a lot of tropes, but the tropes, you know, I feel like tropes without substance are just boring. And uh, at that point, they almost just kind of become cliches. And I think this film, to an extent, really falls into that. Plus, there is a villain at the end that fights, like, V and V for Vendetta. And it's like, what the fuck, dude? Did this movie just turn into a superhero movie or something? Because you're acting wild. Uh, I have no idea what in the hell happens at the end. I don't understand how these people do what they do. Um it doesn't really seem to fit the tone of earlier in the film, so it's just kind of like this weird tacked-on thing that I'm actually more a fan of, but it's just like once you've watched an hour of this thing, it's just like, what the hell's going on? And again, you know, th this this could be a film from the 80s with special effects like something in John Carpenter's The Thing or something, you know, but directed by Wes Craven or someone, you know, someone like that. You know, I would probably actually love this movie. It'd probably be one of my all-time favorites, to be honest. And it's not just me being some weird purist saying if it was done at a, in a, during a certain era, it would just be good. I'm just saying people like this would do this story better. People like Carpenter. People like Craven. People like that could do this. And the problem is Juan is not either of them. And uh, that bums me out because, again, this this uh, this movie's fun. The bones are there in the film. The film has good bones, right? But the skin, I don't like. 
And, uh, you know, again, it's, it's not intolerable. I would actually encourage you to see it if for no other reason than, you know, a lot of people are liking it. And it is better than most of the shit that comes out these days. But because that bar is so low in modern horror, you know, what I just said isn't really much of a compliment. Execution, execution, execution. That is everything. Now, it's clear that James Wan really loves the horror genre and its history, as I mentioned earlier. You know, I I really want to like more of his movies, but I feel like he just uh, struck gold with The Conjuring and then continued to make decent or bad movies. Uh, I wish he was less manip- uh, a less manipulative filmmaker uh, and just made like solid horror movies, you know, rather than relying on creepy dolls that look like over the top creepy or, you know, typical horror scores or bad villains that look like, you know, they came out of a an MTV 90s music video or something, you know, uh, just any of those stereotypes. He He just... He has it in him to pull it off, like to pull off something really, really great. And I'll even say again, because I think The Conjuring's so good, and I just know he does. I just don't like. I just don't think he wants to. <laughs> I think he's happy where he is, and that's fine. I want him to be happy with his work, and if a lot of people like it, great. Uh, it's totally his choice. But this could be a classic, and it's just another movie that I think has forgotten. Uh, will be forgotten sooner rather than later, like, you know, half of his filmography, unfortunately. And I'm not trying to bury James Wan. Again, I love The Conjuring. I had a good time with, uh, what's the other one that I mentioned before? Um, Oh, God. Oh, God. What's that movie called? I'm looking it up. Hold on one second. I can't handle it. Insidious. Okay. Uh, Insidious had a good time with, you know, like it's it's a fun movie, but it's just a mess. But I, w- I would accept that over this. Um, you know, I don't hate this movie despite my criticism. It was it was a fun time for uh, for quite a bit of it. And my criticisms, uh, you know, only held me back from really liking it, you know, but it didn't like ruin it per se. Like after I finished it, like I said, the end was so wacky that, uh, you know, I actually did have a good time. I just think that's that part of it is, you know, being conditioned to accept mediocrity uh, because that's often what we get with modern horror movies. And if something is better than that, it can kind of be overpraised. And I'm like very hyper aware of my overpraising. Um, so, you know, I just won't do that with this one. And it's it's better than a lot, but it's just still only average. Um I want to make one last point. If anyone is thinking, dude, it's supposed to be bad. James Wan knows that the acting is bad and stuff. It's on purpose. Duh. Self-awareness does not make something good. Did we hear me? Should I say it for the people in the back here? Self-awareness does not make something good. Self-awareness often results in something really awful when not in the hands of a master. Okay, self-awareness worked really great with Wes Craven, does not work so great here if that is Juan's uh, intention. And I I feel like that probably is true. I can't say with certainty, but I do feel like that's probably true, but it doesn't help this situation. In this case, I considered that. I did. But regardless of intent, it is still stupid and it does not work. All right. Again, the bones are good, but the execution of this are ridiculous. 
You can't make that happen on purpose unless you are a true master. And even then, I don't know. I give this film a two and a half out of five, and it's all execution issues. Everything else is fine in, in theory, uh, but the execution issues I had a problem with. So two and a half out of five, I'm pretty neutral uh, to negative on this one. Uh, I cannot believe people on Letterboxd are giving this a five out of five stars and gushing. That blows my mind. I sincerely don't understand. Uh, I guess I just don't get how someone sees this as a flawless execution, but to each their own. Despite my rating, go see the film. It's on HBO Max. Uh, you can just watch it right now uh, and see if you agree. Because uh, with a lot of film lovers, you know, who are really into this, you know, maybe you will be one of them. And I feel like I'm probably among the outliers. So if you've seen it already and you agree or disagree, please hit us up at Medium Cool on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at uh, facebook.com backslash medium cool pod. You can search medium cool pod on Instagram and Twitter and we'll pop up. Uh, you can also email us at medium cool pod, uh, at gmail.com. Definitely send us, uh, it's sorry. It's medium cool pod at gmail.com. I think I put an at at the beginning and I'm afraid someone's going to do that wrong. The point is you can email us if you want to let us know what you think. I gave it a two and a half. What'd you give it? Uh, until I get your reply, we're going to go see what Joe's up to, and we're going to talk a little Cohen Brothers. All right, everybody. Uh, today, we have Joe Shearer with us, as I've already said. Uh, Joe, did you know that this episode is Medium Cool's 50th episode? Wow. Very nice. Congratulations. We, we've, we've technically done like 54 because we did some bonus, uh, but sure. I mean, <laughs> but for sure. official <laughs> weekly episodes, 50 uh -huh. today, and you've I'm been around since the beginning. So, you know, we're two episodes away from a year. How's it feel, Joe? It's great. It's amazing. I'm proud. And and you should be proud. You know, obviously you do a lot of these, you know, without me. And and, you know, you so it's kind of a testament to your hard work that this is off the ground and this is rolling and it's the smash success that it is. <laughs> And, you know, uh, you know, just so everybody knows, I'm quitting my job next week so that we can because I because we've gotten to the point where the revenue from the show is is such so that full we can of shit. To not work. <laughs> you are so full of shit. I shouldn't be doing that. <laughs> well, well, just the same. It's a tremendous accomplishment. And uh, and I'm, I'm really happy. Um, All we've yeah, learned yeah. from this segment is don't ever let Joe put you over. That's what I. <laughs> that's what I learned from this. No, man, I, I appreciate all of your contributions as well. This has been a fun time. Again, you know, once we hit October, um, you know, the first week of October will be our fifty-second episode because we yeah. started, I believe, uh, October thirteenth of last year, or something, doing our top fifteen. Uh, horror movies because yeah. quite frankly we didn't know what else to do and we were just like let's just talk for three hours why we did three hour episodes i don't know but the point is we've gotten it down i feel good about it and uh, today is a great day to not only celebrate the 50th episode but also to celebrate ethan cohen's birthday uh one yeah. half of the cohen brothers to discuss some of their movies and joe we're starting with your pick today which mm -hmm. i will just let the cat out of the bag right away is in my top 10 favorite films of all time. Nice. Probably around the six or seven area. I forget exactly. I have a list because I'm that guy. As yeah. uh, as my friend Charlie would say, I'm extra. 
So uh-huh. I, I, I tend to do ridiculous things. Uh, but it is Fargo from 1966, written and directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen. Uh, the cast, let's say 1996. What did I say? 1966. Oh, shut up, Joe. <laughs> uh, it was, you just misspoke, okay? But, you know, I'm just saying. 1996. Was, you know, you get... You get nasty letters from people when you say a color wrong, you know, like if it's yeah. it's not red, it's magenta, you know, so I just, you know, I didn't want people to be all over your case. Well, it's been now. a great episode, Joe. I appreciate you being with us. No, <laughs> uh, right, no, thanks. but it's it's Fargo 1996, as Joe has corrected me. I'm just giving uh-huh. you shit, man. Uh, written and directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen. Cast is uh, Francis McDormand, William H. Macy, Steve Buscemi, uh, I think I just misspelled that name. Uh, is it? It's is it Harvey Presnell? Har- I think it's Harv. Harv. It Harv. Oh, maybe I yeah. didn't misspell. It looked like I just yeah. left letters off. My bad. <laughs> I know. I know, I know that. <laughs> so see, I I fucked up 1966, but then here I am. This is what's going to give me the biggest backlash. But uh, Peter Stormare, of course. Um, you know, the release date was March 8th, 1996. Cost about seven million dollars to make. And it got a box office of $60.6 million. Huge success for what is ultimately an indie flick. I mean, this was pretty much an independent film. Uh, And wow, uh, what a film it is. Uh, Jerry, a small-time Minnesota car salesman, is bursting at the seams with debt. But he's, uh, he's got a plan. He goes to hire two thugs to kidnap his wife in a scheme to collect a hefty ransom from his wealthy father in law It's going to be a snap, and no one's going to get hurt until people start dying. Enter Police Chief Marge, a coffee-drinking, parka-wearing, and extremely pregnant investigator who will stop at nothing to get her perp. The film twists and turns as we, the audience, are dragged along happily watching the snowy neo-noir unfold. It's gruesome and hilarious and heartwarming and everything in between. This is a film I would call perfect, Joe. This is a yeah. just a perfect film for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I, 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 I know I put a lot of movies over, but mm-hmm. I don't use the term perfect often, I don't think. Maybe I do and I don't know it, but I am using it very intentionally this time. Um, but it's it's perfect largely due to Roger Deakins' incredible cinematography. And yeah. it, it's I it's because it's so stripped down. You know, I love the stripped down look of Fargo. And it's not that Roger Deakins is doing anything on the level of like a Blade Runner, like that, the the remake, you know, Blade Runner, what is it, 2049 or whatever. It's it's way stripped down, but it's again, to use the word, perfect. Um, but I love how stripped down Fargo is. It's uh it's not that He's doing anything mind-blowing, but it's just so goddamn perfect as far as it's doing what it needs to do. The performances are on point, Marge being one of the greatest protagonists of the 90s or maybe ever, in my opinion. I love, love, love Marge. Joe, this was your pick, and what a great pick. Uh, What was revisiting this 90s indie classic like for you after years of not seeing it? (laughs) <laughs> well i should say that i have watched this movie many many times so um yeah this is a this is kind of a ro- rotational kind of movie and and you're right i'm happy to hear you say it's one of your favorites it's absolutely one of my favorites you know when a lot of times when people say you know they come to me and they go what what's your favorite movie what are your favorite movies and i have i i basically came up with jaws years ago as my favorite movie because i got tired of people saying it asking and i got tired of being like i don't know i kind of like a lot of movies 
Um, so, um, but yeah, Fargo is definitely kind of a, a top 10, top 20 for sure. Um, and, and I agree with everything you say. Um, and uh, this is an incredible movie on so many levels. And of course, what, what everybody remembers about this movie is the quirky dialogue and the, and the goofy situations and kind of just the funny stuff that happens. And even some of the marketing when it was out was about that, you know, and it was just, oh, look at all these people talking funny. They talk like they're Nordic. They're, you know, quasi Canadians. And then you watch the movie and there's so much to this movie. There's so many levels to this movie, you know, and, and you talked about kind of the comedy and, you know, I've been talking about that kind of the silliness of it. And, but when it comes down to it at the end of the movie, it's this just incredibly cool kind of, it just said neo-noir, but it's got this, you know, that everyone in this movie kind of switches in a sense. There's, you know, there's this, these loyalties with, with Jerry Lundegaard's character early on, you're, you're clearly supposed to kind of sympathize with him. And then later on, you kind of switch that a bit. Um, Marge is a bit of a, kind of a, a silly character. Obviously, you, you talked about, you know, physically her pregnancy. Um, there's a lot of kind of just silly things, the way she talks. Yeah, you betcha and, you know, all that stuff. Um, but then at the end, she certainly proves herself to be a, a very competent investigator. And, you know, she's it, it's, it's funny because you spend the whole movie just like chuckling at, at her folksy colloquialisms or her folksy, you know, expressions and and her small town demeanor and her kind of ultra politeness and then and then when it comes down to it at the end there's just this one or two scenes at the end where it's just she just gets very serious and it's just it, it's like it's on and she's got it figured out and she's scooby doing that some bitch and she's just got him done <laughs> and and you know and and then you know the there's just there's so much in this movie like you said it's, it's just packed full of everything that is good about film and it's, uh, it, it is, it is a, I, I guess I could, I'd have to say it's a top 10 for me too. Um, it, it's just, it's just an, an amazing movie, spectacular in a lot of ways. And um, I'm, I'm glad to, to get a chance to, to talk about it today. Yeah, dude, let, let me tell you one thing that makes it so memorable to me is mm -hmm. I think the Coen's, their writing ability is such a selling point and much like a Tarantino uh, yeah. it is also kind of a calling card. Like yes. whenever you hear dialogue in a Coen Brothers, and it could be anything from a No Country for Old Men to a Raising Arizona to a Fargo, all of which kind of being their own kind of different thing, a Big Lebowski, any of it. There uh -huh. are kind of through lines through their movies that I really tend to kind of gravitate toward. And uh, one of the things that really stands out to me that especially stood out to me for the two Cohen movies we're going to talk about today um, yes. is uh, their, their use of looping dialogue. And by uh -huh. that, I mean, uh, you know, whenever Jerry Lundegaard is talking to his father-in-law and his father-in-law's right-hand man, and he's trying mm -hmm. to get this uh, parking lot, basically, he wants to buy this thing yes. and he brings them, this prospect and they're like cool we want to take it on what do you want for the finder's fee and he's like wait yeah. wait wait i wanted a partnership like and they're mm -hmm. like we're not a bank jerry and then they you know they talk and talk and talk and talk and then eventually the right hand man of the father-in-law drops the we're not a bank jerry line again like sure. that line kind of is reoccurring through throughout these conversations 
Yeah. And it's like, man, how funny is this stuff? And it's played so seriously. And it's reminiscent to me of something even like the Big Lebowski. Mm-hmm. Whenever you have the main trio. Um, oh, my God. Why, I am so bad at remembering names. Jeff, Jeff Bridges. Jeff Bridges. John Goodman. Yep, John Goodman and Steve Buscemi. There you go. Thank yeah. you. I was just like, why did I just space these names? Jesus. Yeah. Anyway, so um, like the three of them are sitting in the bowling alley and John Goodman's talking uh, to uh, the dude, you Uh know, and Steve Buscemi keeps like interrupting because he's only getting bits and pieces. And John Goodman just keeps going, shut the fuck up, Donnie. And then he'll like go back and talk. And it's just like this looping dialogue that comes back in different contexts, kind of, or in the middle of a conversation, he'll just like exclaim this at Donnie and then come back to it. Man, Mm -hmm. looping dialogue, I just didn't realize how kind of ubiquitous it is, like, throughout all of their movies that I can think of. Um, And, God, that is just, like, no one does it like them. I can't think of anyone who does it like that. And I don't know, man, the the writing is so great, but then they also will take from genres. So I mentioned it being kind of a uh, Mm neo-noir, and and for all intents and purposes, it is. Absolutely is. Uh, if you if you even just look at the story beats and what's happening, I mean, you do technically have your detective in Marge, and you know you have the crime that's happening. But they just kind of have a way of spinning a lot of these things on their head. Again, I don't think they're anything really like Tarantino, but I'm using Tarantino as an example because he too is the same way, where he'll take a genre and he'll kind of spin them on their heads. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, with the Coens. You know, doing the neo noir in this way, doing it really funny because the Big Lebowski is also a neo noir, and yeah. you know you could argue, um, well, Miller, Miller's Crossing is more of like a gangster thing that kind of gets into a gray area. Um, yeah. But anyways, you know the the point is like they do a lot of these. You know, I could go yeah. down a yeah. list of movies. Well, even the next yeah. one we're going to talk about, I would say, is a pretty light neo noir, and we can talk about that when we get there. Um, but anyways, yeah, has this ever stuck out to you? This the this their their writing and the Absolutely. um the, just the kind of way that they'll spin these these this their style is what I'm getting at their style yes yeah yeah they they create this they you know in each one of their movies they create a, a world in a sense and and the dialogue that they're creating within that world is amazing and you've mentioned those movies you've mentioned you know O Brother and Big Lebowski and and, um, you know, going back even to like Miller's Crossing and, and Blood Simple, which, uh, you know, these are all, all of these movies are, you know, and thematically, stylistically are very similar. And, and you know, from things like, you know, as you said, the dialogue where, you know, they're, the, it's very, they're very period specific in a lot of ways. You know, if, if you look at the, uh, you know, looking at, as we said, the man who wasn't there, we're going to talk about later, there are very specific things there. Um, the Big Lebowski creates its own sort of dialogue with it between its characters. There's a lot of um, slang and a lot of, you know, colloquialisms and a lot of, sorry, I keep using that word, but there's a lot of um, that sort of specificity within it's kind of, it it kind of takes place within the world proper, but there's a lot of sort of um, specific things to the geography that they're in, you know, raising Arizona is another thing, you know, this, you know, if you think about those characters, how kind of ultra polite they are, even as they're, you know, committing a crime against someone, or, you know, there's a lot of times where they're, you know, they just have this, you know, almost stiltedly formal language that they use, you know, and in Fargo, it's, you know, it's this kind of Northern Minnesota dialect slash North Dakota dialect slash, 
you know, Canadian, I guess, quasi-Canadian, Wisconsin kind of, though, you know, that kind of that region has the, you know, has that kind of stereotypical dialect and um, that kind of uh, Sarah Palin-esque way of talking. <laughs> <laughs> if you forgive me for comparing her to this, to the, the people in this movie. But um, yeah, and, and it, it does a very nice job of busting that stereotype as much as it, it kind of leans on it for laughs. It also busts it at the end. Um, you know, going back to my previous comments, but um, yeah, this movie is is maybe I don't know. Is it for me? Is maybe the most Coen Brothers movie of their movies? Um, it's very it's it's like to me the perfect representation of their work, um, in that it, it combines all those elements, as you said, the the genre mixing and the genre you know flipping, and um, but it still has this just amazing sense of humor and tremendous dialogue. The dialogue is so good. Yeah. It's like, how does, how do a couple of people come up with this? You know, they create different ways of speaking for different people. Although, you know, the, but the, although the overarching thing is still the same, the overarching kind of theme is still the same. They all have their own little bits, you know, and there's, and they even, and they have diversity. You know, there's, there's Shep Proudfoot in this scene here and a few scenes where, you know, he's, you know, and, and then he comes off more as kind of your stereotypical uh, Native American character, but, you know, the, he's there. And then there's these other people that just, you know, they, they have just have all have their little quirks and there's an Asian guy in one scene. And it's just like, it's, it's really just pretty funny to see how all of it works. And it's all done so naturalistically and so in such a way that you're not even paying attention to it uh, because you're laughing at something completely different. Yeah. And, and I love that so much. I love, it's like every frame of this movie, every moment of this movie, every line in this movie is, is just picture perfect. Yeah, dude. I, I mean, I, you're not going to get any complaints from me. And and it's speaking of the dialogue and how people talk, and uh, you know, giving a couple of other examples. Whenever Marge is doing her investigations and she's talking to the two young ladies who had sex with uh, Bushimi yes. and Stormare's character, uh -huh. and it's very yeah. not helpful. But she's just like, so, uh, so who did you have sex with? And this one lady's like, uh -huh. yeah, this one guy, the little one, the, the little uh, one. Yeah, he, he was kind of a little weird looking. How so? I don't know. Just kind of funny looking. Yeah, yeah, funny looking. In a general looking. way. But yeah, in a general way. But then, like, later, I'm talking like an hour later, mm -hmm. so, a different character brings up, oh, yeah, I saw this guy in this bar. Yeah, he's a little funny looking. Eh, just uh -huh. kind of in a yeah. general way. Like, just that, that going back to my looping dialogue, like, it, it's even yeah. not even just within contained in a conversation. They'll just uh -huh. bring these lines back all the way uh, from, like I said, like an hour ago or something. And it's just so, so great. Um, even whenever Bashimi Stormare and William H. Macy at the very, very beginning where they're first meeting and uh, Steve Bashimi's character is basically just like, the fuck have you been? We've been here for an hour. And he's just like, oh, well, Shep told me to be here at 830. He's like, yeah, well, 730 or whatever. We've been here for an hour. And, but that whole conversation, it's just looping back to time. And they'll uh -huh. say they'll talk about it, but they'll go. They'll continue the conversation. You know, yeah. so uh, I don't know. I don't know. There's, dude, there's just something about it. And I'm saying all this again to say that I, I think I agree with you, man. I think Fargo might be like, I'm trying to think how I want to word this. I wouldn't call it, I wouldn't call it the most Coen brothers, maybe. And I'm processing this as we talk, but I think yeah. it's the movie I would want people to see first for a Coen yes. brothers movie. And I say that because it's kind of like Wes Anderson. 
Mm-hmm. I think the most Wes Anderson movie is probably something like Fantastic Mr. Fox. That's yeah. like so quirky and so meticulous. Either that or Grand Budapest, because he just keeps getting yeah. more meticulous and ridiculous. But yeah. I don't think those are necessarily like mm-hmm. the best representations of it. I think sometimes like there are certain movies that act as staples. Like, hey, just start here and then kind of work your way up uh, through these. Uh, and I think Fargo is that staple. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, because yeah. I think the Coens have almost evolved into almost like a different territory. Because mm. if you watch like a newer movie, they don't look or feel like Fargo much anymore. But Fargo no. is a great place to start to mm-hmm. kind of like uh, move forward and get through their work. Uh, but they're yeah. also just so they're also just so um, I don't know. They have like such a variety. I mean, when you watch, again, there are through lines, but when you watch them like Raising Arizona, and now we're having a conversation about the Coens at large. I'll get back to the movie specifically, but Raising Arizona is just slapstick. You know what I mean? Like, it's so goofy. And then you Mm -hmm. get to Miller's Crossing, which is very different, based on uh, like a pulp novel, which is why I I always have a hard time. I have a hard time calling it a neo-noir, because it really is more of a gangster movie, but at the same time, it's based on basically a noir book. (laughs) So it's like, it kind of just fits either. Um, But anyways, um, but that's very different than, you know, Barton Fink and Barton Fink's very different than Fargo. And Fargo's Mm -hmm. honestly very different than Big Lebowski. And then no country for old men. Where's that fit in? Then the man who wasn't there, which, you know, you just watched and we're going to talk about like all of these are very different. So um, yeah, it's really good. I want to talk about the characters real quick, though, and I'm going to kind of start in IMDb order in terms of the ones I want to talk about. I'll pass this off to you here in a second. Yeah. But I think Jerry Lundegaard is one of the just all-time great... I'm going to call him a villain, even though he's like... Yeah. Not really, but he kind of transforms into one by the end, I would argue, even though I use yeah. that term kind of lightly, because yeah. it's... um his, villain, his villainous nature is based on ignorance <laughs> like yeah. like it's not it's not that he's an inherently bad te- well i mean he he does the thing so i mean maybe he is terrible but it's not that he comes off like this villainous person he honestly comes yeah. off like a real nice guy you know? yeah, yeah but by the end yeah, yeah. He's, but, he's the most pathetic character at the beginning yeah yeah, yeah. but by the end you're just kind of like god he's an asshole like it, yeah. it very much becomes this very selfish thing but what i yeah. love about him is uh, throughout the entire film, once the first thing goes wrong, okay, this would probably be when Bashimi and Stormare kill the cop, okay? Yeah. Um, Lundegaard is just so defeated from that point on. Like, there's never yeah. a moment where he, like, keeps thinking he can get out of it, but as you watch the film, progressively more and more and more stacked up against this guy. Now, yeah. it's just one of the great gradual progressions of someone facing too much and exploding. Basically, yes. you know what I mean? Like coming in glued. It's a really great example of that. But also, he's so defeated, even when he loses his temper, like scraping the windshield, you know? Yeah. And, he, and he throws the scraper, and he's just like thrashing around. And then what does he do? He calmly picks up the scraper and begins to go back to work. And yes. scrape the ice. And if that's not the most defining moment of the film for Jerry Lundegaard, this mm-hmm. guy who has this great idea and he has this plan and he tries to work with yeah. his father-in-law and then it gets taken from him. And then what does he do? Yeah. Nothing. 
He just keeps yeah. working. <laughs> you know? yep, yep. <laughs> and it's he like, walks on it. yeah, just walks on. So it's like, no matter how much shit he's put through, he may talk a tough game, but you know, yeah. or maybe he'll throw a fit, but he will grin and bear it. And that's again, back to uh, the Cohen's stellar writing and directing how they can depict that without anyone yeah. ever saying like, you're such a pushover, Jerry. No one ever yeah. says that, but you right. clearly get that in every scene from the very beginning when he's talking uh, to Carl and Gare, which is uh, Bashimi and Stormare respectively. I'm going to try mm-hmm. to start using character names, but uh, when Lundergaard talks to Carl and Gare uh, and they do, they do that whole time thing. Like, we were yeah. told 7.30, Jerry, you know, and that whole thing. Yeah. And he's just like a pushover. Like, he's being so kind. He's like, ship told me 8.30. I'm sorry. You know? yeah. <laughs> like, he does this yeah, thing. Uh-huh. And he's trying to get away from it. And he's, you know, and even whenever they press him on personal issues, he's like, well, that's not an issue. But then what's yeah. he do? He tells him. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So it's uh-huh. like, he's just, he just seems like the kind of guy you wouldn't want to tell a secret. Because with the slightest pry, uh-huh. you know, he's going to yeah. pop right open. Uh, yeah, exactly. Tell me how you feel about Jerry, because I think this yeah, is yeah. such a great character to start a film around. Yeah, yeah, he's he is a great, great character. And William H Macy plays him; he makes him an all-time great character. You know, just you know, through between the writing and his his performances, it is incredible. Yeah, and and the movie starts off, and this is one of the the brilliant things about the movie is, is it starts off you you know you feel for him you know for certain you you know you see people pushing him around and you see that, you know, he's not a big guy, you know, he's a, he's a car salesman. And, um, you know, I, I have car sales is kind of in my blood. It's not something I've ever done myself, but uh, my dad and, and my uncle, and uh, I got a cousin um, who were all in the car business for years and years. I used to work in, you know, at a dealership. And so I have kind of seen that personality and he plays that personality perfectly. Um, the, you know, kind of the, the the facade you put on you know to to sell someone a car yeah uh, he has that you know and, and you see him doing his thing from time to time and even there he's being pushed around and you see him but you see him using that as you know in his job he uses that kind of patheticness to to his advantage at times you know but it also gets to him because you know when you're pretending that much and you're pretending that big it kind of it you know ends up catching up to you so you know, he, it's funny because you sit there and, and watch him and, and you very much sympathize with him. You very much are supposed to be sympathizing with him. And, you know, but, it, but if you say it, you know, that, Hey, he hired these two thugs to kidnap his wife to hold for ransom so that he can extort money out of his father-in-law. Like, you'd be like, what a dick, what yeah. a dick that guy is. And, and in the end, that's what he is. He's a dick, you know, but um, but you, you know, in, in seeing kind of the impetus for that, that, you know, he's, he's struggling like everybody else does, and he's trying to get ahead, you kind of feel for him a bit as the movie is going on. But, you know, then toward the end, that, you know, that falls away, and you see kind of his true colors, and you get to really see those. Yeah. But you're only getting hints sprinkled here and there. You know, the, I love the, 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 one, the one scene where he's uh, in, in his office with the, the two customers, and, and the guy is like, well, what about the clear coat? You know, <clears throat> there's a the whole thing with the clear coat. And I can't remember if that's that's the scene where the guy is like, oh, you said that would be included. And he's like, no, 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 that costs extra. And he's like, you're a liar. 
you're a liar, Mr. Lundergaard. Yeah. You know, and I love the, I love the, it's the look on his face before he, you know, he says, you're a bald faced liar. And then he's like, and he's like, I'm going to say it. I'm going to swear. And he's like, a, a, a fucking liar. And it's just, I love it so much because of the look on that guy's face. But the best part though is also his wife. Yeah. Cause when he says fuck, she just like, like, kind of like, Oh honey, stop. Like, you know, she's like trying to calm him down. Um, no. dude, yeah, that scene's great. Yeah, it was it was the other way around. He told him that the true coat was not gonna be involved, and now he's okay, basically fine. forcing him, like, no, it comes factory, like you have to pay the five hundred, and the guy's just yeah. like super pissy about it. But it, it's yeah. that's a great example of again, like it's funny because I feel you said true colors. You mentioned Jer- Jerry oh. showing his true colors. What's funny yeah. is I don't think Jerry knew what his true colors were. Yeah. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Like, I don't, I, guy, right? yeah, I don't, I think he yeah. thinks he was a good guy. I think he thinks he was doing something harmless to do something that was for the betterment of his family, but his father thinks he's a fuck up or his yeah. father-in-law. So like yeah. his father-in-law won't help, even though he very much could, and it'd be really good for he and his family. Yeah. Um, and it proves to be because the father-in-law is willing to take the job, right? They check it out and they're like, wow, this looks really good. And yeah. Jerry has all of these great ideas. But the true coat argument at the beginning shows that even though, like, yeah, he's trying to be a car salesman. Yeah, he's manipulating a bit. But in yeah. his mind, it's innocent. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Until it's not he's providing, anymore. right? Yeah. yeah. Until he's it's not living. anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And you, and you, you know, you, you made that, there was that, you know, you talked about the scene with his father-in-law too, with the, uh, about the parking lot. And again, I can't remember if this is the, the same sequence or not, but there's that moment where, uh, again, you know, when we're talking about him, the sympathy we're, we're getting is when he's talking to his father-in-law and he's like, no, this is, this could be a good deal for me. This could be, this could, you know, give me the means that I need and it gives security for me and, and Gene and Scotty. And he just like looks at him and he goes, Gene and Scotty never have to worry. Yeah. You know? And, and it's just like, you're like, what a dick that guy is. But then, you know, and again, this is like how we are with him um, through this, through this whole first half of the movie or so. And, and you're just like, wow, like what a put upon guy he is. And then later on, you're like, well, maybe he is a weasel, you know. And then by the end, you're like, yeah, he's definitely a weasel. <laughs> and, you know. Well, even speaking of Jerry's ideas, and I'll get back to performances here in a moment. Uh, talking about how, just how great the Coens are, let's just keep doing that. Uh, yeah. Their dark humor is mm-hmm. so fantastic. I mean, yeah. they, I think they have some of the best dark humor. And I think one of the just archetypal dark humor moments in cinema is uh-huh. Steve Buscemi walking up as uh what's the wife's name again um gene 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 thank yeah. you yeah. yeah uh whenever gene's sitting there knitting watching tv <laughs> and just like you, know, uh-huh. you have you have bashimi uh bashimi's uh carl i think is his name. god damn it i keep i'm trying to like do things right here joe do it right <laughs> anyways sorry i was clicking buttons i couldn't find the thing i wanted <laughs> Anyway, so Carl, uh, you know, Jean's sitting there knitting, watching this goofy show, but she's just so into it. And can we just talk about Jean's performance real quick? She's in it for like five minutes. Uh She is absolutely extraordinary to me. I think her her accent is possibly the best in the movie. Uh, and, And it's definitely more like exaggerated almost but it sounds authentic. It just sounds like much, much more. Um, But she's so great. Her response to the television show is so perfect. 
It's this little subtle kind of joyous smile she gets watching these two people that you and I would just roll our eyes at because they're just Uh so performative on television and she just buys into it and she just loves it. But then Bashimi's Carl walks up to the window mask, you know, with a ski mask on and his, his crowbar and he just like puts his hands up against the glass and peeks in, which is yeah. so amateurish. Yeah. So that's yeah. the other thing is you have these, you know, back to the Tarantino comparison or not comparison. Cause they, you can't compare them, but Tarantino with like Reservoir Dogs and stuff, people used to talk about with those movies that he did, he humanized or made these people seem like real people. They're not perfect criminals. Like they just, they do things in a very different way. The Coens Mm -hmm. do that as well, right? Yeah. Where like Bashimi comes up and he peeks in. Clearly a guy that has not done this work a lot, right? Clearly a guy that doesn't put a lot of thought into what he's doing. And again, yeah. talk about nonverbal storytelling. Like we're learning yeah. about this character through actions. But then yeah. back to Jean, when he yeah. she just stares at him. She yeah. doesn't move. She's kind of like nervous and freaked out. Yeah. But huh? she's like like anyone else would have just ran away. But she yeah. just sits and waits. And then he yeah. breaks the window like a chump with this <laughs> with this yeah. uh crowbar. And she, uh-huh. her freak out is so absolutely outstanding. So yes. huge credit to Jean here uh-huh. because I yeah. think I think uh, her name's uh, God. I'm never gonna say this right. <laughs> I was I was gonna yeah I was gonna say it. Is it Chris, is it Kristen Rudrud? Rud Rudrud is how I would pronounce it. Using drawing upon my past with German, the umlaut creates that little weird. I I did my best Dude. there. Yeah yeah. And also the authenticity there. Uh, I've got her IMDb page pulled up because she is from Fargo, North Dakota. That's where she was born. What? Now that's great. Yeah. Joe coming in with the trivia here. I didn't. That with offer I didn't even make notes of Jean because I didn't expect to talk yeah. about her that much. So uh, I'm I'm glad that we got to because because uh, yeah. she's great. But man, that she, that sequence, uh, the dark humor in it as well because everyone's playing it straight. There's no one's yeah. in on the joke. No one's being self-aware. They're uh-huh. playing it straight. The music's playing it straight. There's no goofy music. It's like very kind of tense yeah. music. But the scenario is hysterical. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it, it is. And, and that whole time, yeah, because you just sit there and watch her and she just, I mean, it, it's a beat. The beat is about, I don't know, eight or nine seconds of her just watching this guy who's very obviously trying to break in. Like yeah. there's, there's yeah. no mistake. Like why is someone wearing a ski mask at my front door and peeking in the front window? It's like, there's really no other explanation other than this guy's trying to break in. And, and you know, what's funny. You said the front door thing and I, I'm not yeah. calling you on and making a point because the front door yeah. is actually somewhere else. These are these huge picture ah. windows that face big windows. Yeah. yeah. But I'm not, I didn't say that to correct you. I say it to ah. make a point. Bashimi breaks one of these windows to get in. Yeah. But uh, Stormare's gear just goes through the front door, <laughs> and it's like, why did why did Bashimi's Carl break the wind? Like, it's just so ridiculous. I just love it so much, and yeah. Uh, yeah uh, also, another thing about William H Macy before we completely move on, because uh, I was talking, we were talking about him last in terms of performance. I'm pretty sure I heard this, and I just looked at his IMDb. I'm pretty sure this is true. I'm pretty sure Fargo was kind of the breakout. William H. Macy role because he'd been doing stuff since the seventies. Yeah. Most of it TV. 
Um, he was also in some David Mamet stuff, which I'm a huge Mamet fan. Yeah. Um, but I don't think any of that would have made him some like huge star by any means. And he had yeah. some roles in like Mr. Holland's Opus and things like that, Down Periscope, mm-hmm. you know, like these random yeah. movies. Uh, but he, I, I he don't. He was very randomly in um, The Last Dragon in like '83 or something. I, I watched The Last Dragon a few years back. I'd never seen it. Yeah. And you know, it's this goofy like quasi black exploitation martial arts movie, and there's William H. Macy just appearing in it. <laughs> just there and you're yeah. just like, what? Dude, that's yeah. super his weird. Was, his but, name was JJ in that movie. Yeah, JJ. Yeah. <laughs> he was he was in that. He was also in like war games. Yeah. With Ferris Bueller himself. Yeah. Uh Matthew, what's his name? Matthew Broderick. Um, but yeah, but then he's in but he's in Fargo, and that really kind of set off his career because you can see a distinct difference between the caliber of films. From yes. like before Fargo and after Fargo, uh, so yeah. it's pretty cool that you know he became who he is today, mm-hmm. as just like a name from this. Uh, so back back to performances here. I also want to talk about Marge Gunderson, yeah, uh, played by Frances McDormand, one of as I said earlier the all time just great uh, characters of the '90s and maybe just ever, but definitely of yeah. the '90s. And I also want to just by proxy throw in uh, the husband Norm. And their yes. relationship, because uh-huh. I think their relationship is, again, one of the best things of the 90s, if not forever. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, can, can like this is, and I mean this, I'm being completely sincere. Can you think of a better uh, like romance or like a, not romance a relationship between yeah. two lead characters than uh-huh. Marge and Norm? And yeah. and if if you're going to say yes, I will challenge you with the final scene in the film. <laughs> yes. Where Norm talks about and this isn't a spoiler anybody, but at the same time this movie's too big that you should have seen it. But yeah. uh anyways, Norm is a painter, all right? Mm-hmm. And apparently uh, allegedly he uh, the backstory on Norm, they never say this in the film. So this is just stuff mm-hmm. I learned just doing research. Apparently he used to be a cop. Mm-hmm. And then Marge used to be a cop. But it was too much for him. So one of them needed to stop. But Marge was like higher up and she was more like Mm -hmm. into it. So Norm stopped to be a painter, apparently. Because the Coens always have backstories for the characters that they never tell. And apparently Mm -hmm. that's allegedly what what his backstory is. So he's a painter now. So he paints Mm -hmm. this mallard, apparently. This is all off screen. Paints his mallard. So he takes it to this contest to see who's going to get on the stamps. Mm -hmm. And he gets a three cent stamp. He actually got a stamp with his painting. And he's, uh, like, proud of it, but he's also kind of down on it because he's like, ah, but it's not the 32-cent stamp or whatever the <laughs> whatever the big yeah. ones were that you go for as a as a painter who wants to be on stamps. Like, wh- also, yeah. just, like, what a great scenario. Like, what a great concept for a character mm-hmm. is his – he thrives to paint for stamps. Like, that's such a yeah. great a great character uh-huh. builder. But then, like, uh, Marge goes on and on about how important the three-cent stamps are. Mm-hmm. And she just yeah. brings Norm's spirits up. And the final the final words of the film, if I re- remember correctly, are, mm-hmm. I love you, Marge. And she says, <laughs> I love you, too. And that's it. They're uh-huh. the best couple, dude. It's, yeah, it's great. It's tremendous. Yeah, the, his <sighs> introduction, too. It's both of their introductions. It is my, it's my, my favorite kind of low-key moment in the movie 
is when is Marge's introduction and Norm's introduction. I was going to bring this up, but you go for it. Yeah, yeah, they're they're you know they're in bed. It's like you know the phone's ringing in the middle of the night because of the murder, and you know so she wakes up. And, oh, I mean, I guess that's early in the morning um, because she's like, it's like it has you know, to be like four or five in the morning. The sun's yeah, yeah. barely coming up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and he gets up and he's just and he's sitting there in the bed and he's like. It's like, oh, I gotta go in. There's been a murder, you know, whatever. And and uh, he's like, want me to make you some eggs? And then he like proceeds to let out the biggest hawk in the world. It's <laughs> 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 like, I think about eating some scrambled eggs and then have somebody do that. And it just, I laughed so hard when that happened. Um, <laughs> it's, just, it's such a low key moment. <laughs> but but hold on, man. This is what makes uh, Coen Brothers movies so great. This is in yeah. like every Cohen's movie. Like there's always yeah. something like this, you know? Yeah. So it could just be Norm saying like, I'll make you some eggs. Yeah. yeah. Like it, that's just yeah. gross. Right. You know what yeah. I mean? Because but, she says no thanks. Right. And then he's like, and then he, and then he hawks and he's like, now I'm going to make you some eggs. Yeah. And, and, but he insists because she needs to eat because she's pregnant. Yes. That's the absolutely. whole point. So he's like, mm-hmm. no, no, you need to eat. I'll make you some eggs. And yeah. then she's like, are you sure? And he's like, yeah, you need to eat. Are you sure? Like, they're just so sweet. Like, they don't want to inconvenience each other. But at the same time, they're like, it's very important to them uh, yeah. to support each other. And then you have the great uh, sequence where uh, she buys him some night crawlers. And he's there. Yes. And she's like, what'd you get? Did you get to Ar- or, uh I don't remember how she says it. But the way she brings Arby's into it. What are you yeah. eating? Arby's or something? Yeah. I don't know. Or I, yes. I just with the worms, yeah, yeah. I just can't remember exactly how uh-huh. she words it, but it's a very funny wording. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. And uh, I let's, just let's talk about let's talk about this guy for a second. This John Carroll Lynch plays him, plays Norm, and he has now at the time like that. I think that was the first thing I saw him in. I didn't even recognize him as I do later on, but he's been in things like Zodiac, yeah, and he had a he had a little arc on The Walking Dead. Um, that was tremendous. It was like one episode that was tremendous. Well, real quick with that, this he's the dude that brings in. Uh, uh, God, I don't remember any of the characters' names. The whole episode's in like black and white or something. And I yeah, hate to go ahead. This is Eastman. He plays Eastman um, in the walk. You're talking about the Walking Dead. Yeah. Stint, the Walking Dead episode. No. So the, this is the one where you find out where Morgan got his bow training from. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Because it's just a flashback, really. Yeah. And then he goes, I just want to say something about this scene. I'm so sorry to interrupt you, but I'm making a big deal about this because one, first off, John Carroll Lynch is awesome in that. Secondly, because I don't like The Walking Dead show, but that episode, my Uh buddy's like, dude, you have to watch this. I'm like halfway through, but I'm going to start it over for you. Like, we got to watch this. So uh, I watch it because I watched all the way to the I think it was the third or fourth season, the first season where they started doing eight episodes, a break and then eight episodes. And I watched the whole first half and then I watched about half or a quarter of the next half. And I just felt like I was wasting my time. I just didn't like it. But my buddy was watching the whole thing. And so he would occasionally tell me about things. And I'd read all the comics and stuff. And again, I don't mind if things are different. But just right. things that were happening made no sense to me. I'm just like, why would you ever do this? So yeah. he's like, dude, you have to watch this episode. And I'm like, dude, I'll watch it with you. That's fine. And we watched that episode. Uh-huh. And I thought it was just, I was like, this has to be the best thing they've ever done. Yeah. And then I get on the internets 
Uh-huh. And I find out it's like one at the time. It was like the lowest rated episode of that <laughs> season because all of these uh-huh. fucking plebs watching uh, uh-huh. Walking Dead are bored because it's a black and white episode that's yeah. all talking right. pretty much. I mean, there's not a ton of action in it. But yeah, the yeah. thing is, like, dude, what a character development episode. Holy yeah. crap. Absolutely. I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah, that, I'm putting that over. Stuff. No, yeah, absolutely, yeah, and and the the funny thing that which I learned um, at some point, probably right after, um, his character's name is Eastman. You know, he uses the bow staff, and his name is Eastman, which is supposed to be like there's it's it's kind of like a quasi play on like China, but it's also Eastman is also the name of the co-creator of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. So they, so Robert Kirkman, uh, they, I said, I think it was on the, the Talking Dead show after that, that he admitted that that's why, that's the kind of the inspiration of it is that he's that's that, you know, so that just a, another bit of trivia, but yeah, yeah but yeah. He, you know, and he was in Zodiac in the scene and he was, ama- he was the guy, he ended up being well, he's the guy supposed to be the Zodiac. I mean, yeah, that's who they're hinting the at Zodiac. is the Zodiac. Yeah. 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 And he was fantastic in just a couple of scenes. Um, he was in, um, uh, the the trial of Chicago Seven just uh, this past year, um, and was terrific. He's just he's turned into one of those guys that he's turned into like a William H Macy kind of character where you see him in a movie and you're just like, oh well, you know, like this is going to be entertaining, just you know, be just on the basis of him being here. So he's, uh, he's, he's very quickly becoming one of those guys. He was in the founder, also the uh, the Michael Keaton movie about the McDonald's, you know, about Ray Kroc and McDonald's. He was one of the McDonald brothers. Um, so it was just, he's just been in a lot of stuff kind of just under the radar, um, and is amazing in almost anything he's in. So he's, um, he, he's one of those guys that I watch. It was, it was one of those things where I watched it after I saw one of those and I was like, oh, that's the guy, you know, that's the guy from, you know, from, uh, Zodiac. So, um, it's pretty cool. It'd, It'd be fun to see, go back and see what he's been in. Um, he was in face off. Yeah, yeah. Small, small. I know that. Yeah. No, the Ace Ventura video game, not the same thing. Yeah. Uh, Grumpy Old Men. He was in Grumpy Old Men. Yeah. So, dude's been in a he, lot of you know, stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So, it's it's pretty cool. That, that's It's a great under the radar kind of career. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm glad that he's, you know, he's one of those guys now that I've, I has caught my eye and, and I get to see him and recognize him and we go, oh, yeah, here we go. This is going to be good. Yeah. No, yeah. He's, he's great. Um, I'm so glad we took a minute on him because, I mean, you can watch the movie and you'll see that Francis McDormand, Steve Buscemi, and Peter Stormare are great. Yeah. Just, Mm -hmm. I mean, the the coupling of of Carl and Gayer as being the criminals who are kidnapping. Yeah. Couldn't, I mean, it's the odd couple, right? It's the two people that couldn't be more opposite. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I just, I mean, they're fantastic. Even, uh, even, uh, Harv Presnell, who plays Wade, the the uh, Gene's dad, uh, uh-huh. is so perfect for a Coen Brothers movie. And I want to come back to characters being or actors being perfect for Coen Brothers movies when we talk about the next one, because we're yeah. we're we're running out of time for this for this segment here. So I want to, I just want to move on to a couple of things here real quick. I'm gonna sure. steam. I'm gonna like steamroll a couple things and then give you a chance to kind of finish up here. Okay. Um, but with Fargo. Again, we've talked about the writing, the performances across the board. I can't think of a bad performance in this thing. I think they're mm-hmm. all perfect for what they need to be. Um, and again, Deacons, uh, Roger Deakins is just one of the legendary cinematographers. He actually did both of the films we're talking about today. Uh, 
And uh, he is uh, an absolute genius with a camera. And and when I say that, I don't mean he does these showy things. I mean he does exactly what needs to be done for the story being told and for the movie, like what the movie needs. Um, mm-hmm. And he, he finds that balance between finding that, working with the directors and so on. He's just great at capturing visions. And so Deacons is fantastic. The character development in this, when I talk on this show about how most new movies suck at fucking character development, they need to go watch a Coen Brothers movie. Yeah. Jesus, watch Fargo, dude, because mm-hmm. every scene says something about a character. We yeah. see Shep Proudfoot maybe five times in the movie, and I feel like I know who that guy is. You know yes. what I'm saying? So yes. it's like, like, this is how you develop a character. This is not the mm-hmm. only way, but this is a great place to start. Okay, yeah. um, so their development's on point. They're writing again. They're directing their vision. Uh, all of these characters are just perfectly performed. It's kind of like a Paul Thomas Anderson movie or a Tarantino movie, where uh, or a Wes Anderson even, where it's like not in just anyone can be in one of these movies. Like yes. you need people who can pull off this thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, wow, they just they just knocked it out of the park with this group. The dark humor spot on. The neo noir. I'm a huge noir nut. So yes. all of that kind of mystery and like what's going to happen and all the crime and the detective and all that stuff, even though it's done in a very different way, I'm mm-hmm. just a fan. This is, again, top 10 worthy for me. If you've not seen it, shame on you. Go yes, watch it right be. now. While Joe tells us his final thoughts on Fargo, I'm going to look up where you can find this movie now. Because if you haven't no. seen it or you haven't seen it in a long time, I encourage you to go check it out. But Joe, tell us what you think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, uh, yeah. What you know? What more can you say about this movie? Well, a lot because there's a lot more to say. The, you know, the character development just is perfect. The storytelling is amazing. This is a movie that you don't even really know that you know the journey you're being taken on. It's a kind of movie where halfway through you're like, "What is this movie about?" And because you've just been paying attention to all of the the histrionics and the the silliness, and you know, there there's a scene where. Um, uh, Marge goes and meets this guy that she went to high school with, and you know it's this chance to reconnect. And what he what she finds out is that the guy, uh, what his wife passed away, and he's very clearly trying to hook up with her, like yeah. despite the fact that you know she's about eight months pregnant, and she's and he knows that she's married, and he's very clearly trying to hook up with her and it's just such a silly yeah. bizarre scene and you're like what does this even have to do with the rest of the movie but it's but it, it's it's a marge moment you know and, and she's just like moment. yes yeah yes. she's like oh uh yeah no you know because the guy breaks down and he's like i've just been so lonely marge you know and, and it's just such an off the wall moment it's like how do you how do you do that to and just just to bring a little bit of character development out of it? You know, it's, it's the kind of scene that most places would most films would have just cut and, and been done with it. But um, that's the brilliance of this movie, you know, and just the lines, you know, you said, you know, you betcha and all that stuff that it just pervades. And then the, um, you know, Buscemi's myriad of lines through the whole movie, uh, our buddy Sam Watermeyer, uh, his one of his favorite expressions is, Oh, you think you're a big man, huh? King clip on tie, you know what, what she says to the guy in the like again, the guy in the parking garage. Like there's a parking garage sequence where he's trying to get out. He's trying to get out of the parking garage because he just pulled in and the guy's trying to charge him. 
It's just all these kinds of things, all these little details that are just exquisitely important to the movie and the, the character development, even though the narr narratively it's not that important. You don't need to see him slapping money into a guy's hand and, and giving him attitude, but but it's important to know who Carl is. And, you know, he's that guy that, that thinks he's hot stuff, but he can't deal with the, you know, he can't deal with things not going right. You know, so he's, he's a poor criminal and he's a poor, kind of a poor person uh, because, you know, it's like being a poor person is what makes him a poor criminal. So um, there's just so much, so much in this movie, so many lines and so many memorable things. And, and it, it's easy to, to overlook the fact that it's a damn good movie in you know in any kind of respect so um yeah if if you know you if you watch that movie and you're like oh my god i love the lines and it's just so funny and it's like no let's go watch it again and watch the movie dude and and just and laugh of course but then watch the movie and, and tell people about how great a movie it is i mean you're 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 pretty much naming like my entire undergrad with the Coens. <laughs> like the big lebowski yeah. is the same th uh -huh. same way it's all yeah. about the dude and these funny situations, but it's like, dude, that movie's actually a genuinely good neo-noir. Yeah. Like, it's called The yeah. Big Lebowski for a reason. If you go back and yeah. watch all these 40s and 50s noirs that were the big whatever, it's also, yeah. like, influenced by these old pulp novels. So, like, mm -hmm. you're spot on. Like, it's very easy. Yeah. Even, like, uh, like, it's like watching Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket and loving yes. it for the first 30 minutes. Or right. something. It's like, whoa, yeah. whoa, whoa, whoa. You're miss like I get that that's entertaining, but you're missing the thing. You know? Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. And uh the I have to just say the line and then we'll finish this up and move on to the next. Uh that Carl says, he goes, I guess you think you're, you know, like yeah. an authority figure with a stupid <laughs> fucking uniform, huh, buddy? King clip on tie there, big fucking man, huh? Like that's just so good. Yeah. Uh -huh. It's ridiculous. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, and, and like I said, Sam is constantly, I mean, weekly, one of us is saying that to the other. So it's, you know, it, it, even now, it, you know, what is it, 25 years or so later, 20, whatever it is, 20, yeah, 25, 20, I don't know, a long time. <laughs> <laughs> 20 plus years. It's 25 after years. After we came out, we're still, you know, he's he's quoting that to me and, and to, you know, to our friends um, a lot. So I, I love it. And I, I laugh every time, you know, he does it. And I laugh every time I see that. So. Um, yeah, yeah. Watch this movie if you haven't. Um, uh, if if you have, go watch it again because it's it's an all time great. Absolutely, it is absolutely great. And uh, if you want to check it out, you can. I didn't find it streaming anywhere for free, but you can clearly you know rent this on iTunes, uh, uh, YouTube, uh, Amazon Prime, wherever you get your movies. Spend the four bucks. Do yourself a favor. Uh, it's like three ninety nine. Just rent this thing. And, and get this it. out of just your system. Yeah, just buy it. Yeah, buy it on our recommendation. Trust me, yeah. I don't understand how anyone could not at least enjoy this movie to some degree. But with that, uh, we're going to go ahead and move on to the next Coen Brothers movie. It was my choice and largely chosen because I knew that Joe had never seen it. And it yeah. was one of, I hadn't seen it in a long time, but it was one of my favorite Coen Brothers movies when I saw it. And it's called The Man Who Wasn't There. All right, everybody, we are here to talk about our second Coen Brothers movie, The Man Who Wasn't There from 2001. This is an under-the-radar Coen Brothers movie, I feel like. It was made yeah. by USA Films, which it's like, like, what production company 
is that other than like the USA TV network had like a films division and made this movie. Uh, But anyways, it was written and directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen, of course. Uh, Again, well, I'll get there. Uh, Cast, Tony Shalhoub, Scarlett Johansson, James Gandolfini, Francis McDormand, Michael Badalucco, uh, Richard Jenkins, and John Polito. Of course, the lead of the film, Billy Bob Thornton, and just one of the... I mean, you get this typecast of Billy Bob Thornton, and this is not it. And I love those movies that are not it, right? You have your Sling Blades, you have... Uh, you have this film. There are like a handful of these. Even in the Fargo, we just talked about it in the Fargo TV series, uh, yeah. Billy Bob Thornton plays a great, like, kind of character that's out of his, uh, what is it, uh, Bad Santa or what? Like, I don't know. Yeah. He just has this kind of like irritated white guy uh, yeah. typecast, but he's so, so great here, I think. Um, yes. Hold on. Okay. Sorry, like someone's calling me right now. Why are they calling me? <laughs> Anyways, so uh, if anybody hears beeps, it's because I'm using my phone. Anyways, uh-huh. so uh, the release date for The Man Who Wasn't There is November 2nd, 2001 for the U.S. release. Uh, budget was $20 million. Box office, $18.9 million. Womp, oh, womp. It was a flop. Yeah. Uh, like no one... Dude, I actually, I got really into the Coens. Mm-hmm. And I had watched a ton of stuff, and I didn't even know this existed. Yeah, and then yeah. I couldn't find it. So <laughs> and then I, th- yeah. I think I ended up getting it through like Netflix back when I got discs or something. Mm-hmm. I think I had to get it that way because I just couldn't find it anywhere. Uh, yeah. Now you can get it on Blu-ray and stuff. I have the Blu-ray of it. It's it's uh, it's cool. But anyways, the film's about uh, well, basically it takes place in 1949 where we follow Ed Crane, who's, you know, this low key barber in a small or in a town of Santa Rosa, California. He's married to Doris, a bookkeeper with a drinking problem, and works in a barbershop owned by his brother-in-law, Frank. In a loveless marriage and working at uh, a job that he simultaneously enjoys and loathes, uh, a tale of murder, crime, and punishment sets off uh, with many unexpected turns. Ed is dissatisfied with his life, of course, but he's offered an opportunity to change it. And the film follows the shenanigans that unfold shot in gorgeous black and white again by legendary mm-hmm. cinematographer, Roger Deakins. We are tossed back in the best way to the films of the 1940s and fifties. Uh, mm-hmm. But through the lens of a modern day Coens, yeah. uh, I wish this film could have been made in the time in which it's set in 1949. Uh, yeah. You know, because uh the problem is most of the plot points and stuff would have been hit the cutting room floor because there's way too many edgy things. But I yes. think like it would have been an awesome movie from the 40s also, I feel like. like This would have fit that. And that's part of what I love about this movie is how it does, in my view, kind of fit into the era in which it uh, takes place while, like I said, also very clearly fulfilling kind of a modern-day Cohen's uh, vision. So, Joe, yes. this was your first time seeing The Man Who Wasn't There. Yes. Where does it fall in the filmography of the Coens for you? Would you put it up there with the Fargos and the Barton Finks or down mm-hmm. with the Lady Killers and the Intolerable Cruelties? Where do you stand? It's I, I don't know. It's probably somewhere in the middle. Um, I really enjoyed it. Uh, the The Coens are, are arguably my favorite filmmakers. Let's say it like that. They're They're way up there. Um, this is probably, it's probably sort, sort of in the middle. Um, but I really enjoyed it and they, 
they do some really good things in this movie. There, a lot of their hallmarks are on display. You know, you you mentioned the, you know, it, it's funny the, you know, the the noir stuff, you know, is is still there. That you know, that's part of their thing for sure. Uh, there's there's a lot of kind of thematic things. The the um, the kind of inciting incident, so to speak, is is this chance for him to to invest in a dry cleaning business. You know, which yeah. which kind of calls back to the Hudsucker proxy with the hula hoops, you know, being the big idea. Yeah. You know, something that, you know, that we consider like, that we certainly take for granted these days as being a minor thing. But, you know, it, it's kind of fun to remember at one time that was a big innovative idea. And and so, we you know, we hit that. There's this, you know, this using your family um, as the impetus for a crime. You know, in, in this case, it's, you know, the, you know, the, this. I don't know how far we want to get into it, well, but you know, this, let this me, blackmail plot. Yeah, let me that, set you up for it because I want you to keep talking, but I do realize that in my synopsis, I feel like there are some details that can be told, and it's not spoilers because I'm actually going to stay further away from spoilers on this because I yeah. really want people to go see this movie personally. Um, though it is not as high on the Coens as it was when I first saw it, and I think that was part uh, partially because it was early in my film uh, exploration and it was a movie uh. that no one I knew had seen. So it was like this exciting little treasure I found. And so I think I gave it way too much. I still adore this movie. I put it on the upper side of mid tier, Uh Um, but still, I really love this movie, but I'm with you. Um, But uh, yeah, so just real quick. And again, I'm going to tell you some things. These are not spoilers. This is literally the setup of the freaking movie. So Mm -hmm. you can just like go watch it. But basically, Billy Bob Thornton plays this this barber with Michael Badalucco's Frank. Frank is his is uh, Billy Bob Thornton's character's brother-in-law. Uh, Thornton plays Ed, and his wife is Doris, played by Frances McDormand. So, uh, you know, Ed works with Frank. He's married to Doris. Doris is having an affair with Big Dave, who is her boss, uh, played by James Gandolfini. Uh Clearly, Ed knows this. <laughs> like, yeah. like yeah. it's it is no surprise mm-hmm. that this is happening to him. But he is just so passive and so chill that he never makes a big fuss. And it's it's uh it's a very he's just a very strange character. And we'll get to that later. But the whole point is the the entire crux of the film is that he has this guy come in at the last minute and he cuts his hair. And this is played by Joe Polito, who is another like Cohen's regular and one of those guys yeah. we were just talking about like uh Michael Badalucco who are uh-huh. like not just anyone can do Cohen's but these guys are so good at it yes. like they're almost yes. better than like the big names like they're just so good at this thing so Joe yeah. Polito is trying to s- start something called dry cleaning this absurd idea that didn't exist before yeah and uh you know Ed Billy Bob Thornton's Ed Crane is just like Hey, you know what? I need some something new in my life. I need to, you know, I need something more than a loveless marriage and, you know, basically yeah. having to grin and bear this life that I'm starting to loathe more and more as each day passes. Yeah. So uh, he decides to essentially blackmail Big Dave for the 10 grand that he needs to basically be a partner in this dry cleaning thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's pretty much what happens the, the and I'm going to give this away but again none of this is I don't consider these spoilers Joe I think you'll agree with me um uh-huh. but it ends up with I'll just say I'll say it vaguely James Gandolfini's big Dave dies yes he's killed that's the whole point of the film yes. 
and it causes a lot of problems for a lot of people and a yes. lot of people take advantage of the problems for the other people. And that's kind yep. of like the whole film. So continue, yeah. Joe, with what you were saying sure. about that. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, so it, it's basically it's a lot of those hallmarks. Yeah, it's the it's a, a crime gone bad from someone who um, is not, obviously not, you know, and even just thinking about Fargo previously, who's not a hardened criminal, who's a quote-unquote regular kind of guy, and he decides to do something morally questionable to illegal to get, you know, to, to get ahead in some way, right? To, to get what they want. You know, in, in Jerry Lundegaard's case, it was he was trying to get this money for his parking lot. In this case, he wants this money so that he can invest in his, um, invest in this dry cleaning idea, this scheme. And um, yeah, so, and, and all of these kind of things are on display, you know, and you talked about those guys, um, those actors, um, you know, Michael Badaluco was the one that I, you know, I was like, oh, he's the first one I recognized as one of those Coen brothers, that guy. So he was like, oh yeah, he's the, um, he plays uh, Babyface Nelson and Oh Brother. And, and yep. you know, they're, all of these guys are in other movies. Um, I, I want to say um, um, the, uh, the, the other guy, uh, John Polito is in, um, Oh, is he in the Hudsucker proxy? I think he's in a couple of them at least, but you know, so these guys, Miller's crossing, he was in Miller's crossing yeah. too. Um, so th there's just all these guys who were, um, who appear in these other movies and Francis McDormand, of course, is, um, you know, is married to Joel Cohen. I yeah, think. Yeah. And it's so and, weird because it's weird calling her regular, even though she 100% is, but she's yeah. so transcended the Coens that it's like, yeah. well, I don't even think of her as a Coens regular, but she really is. And even yeah. uh, Richard Jenkins is in the film later, yeah. and he kind of later became a guy you see in a lot of these Cohen movies. Um, so mm -hmm. there are also kind of bigger names that yeah. are also kind of regulars. Uh, John Goodman yeah. would be another great example. He's not in this, unfortunately, but yeah. Um, yeah. But go ahead, sorry. Yeah, yeah people like Buscemi and yeah, and and, and uh, uh, John Goodman and you know many others. You got uh, George Clooney for a while was in multiple movies. You know, so you know you know that you know uh, that these guys are in. You know kind of carrying along so um there's there's i don't know there's a lot of um there's a lot of those hallmarks there on display um and that's that's to me one of the more notable things about the movie um aside from you know billy bob thornton <laughs> and um his his uh, narration his narration for some reason stood out to me it's very good it's so great he's got this very droll croaky kind of voice and he just stands out, um, and and it's it's just it's terrific. It's some terrific stuff. So anybody who tells you that uh, this this voiceover is anything but something that the Coens had to work a great deal on to make so good, yeah, it is not worthless. I mean, this is. Oh no! Now I'm going to make an overstatement here. Okay. But this is, I mean, this is like your Travis Bickle taxi driver thing they're not the same but what i mean by that is like it so clearly shows the inner workings of the person's mind like the yep. so the, the oh my god there's so much to say about this movie but i don't want to just like linger on and on here's the thing ed crane you learn nothing about him in the movie in terms of how he interacts with people other than he's like really yeah. passive and quiet you yeah. only develop this character through the voiceover like we yes. never see him you know exclaim about much like there's one yeah. scene where he raises his voice that i remember uh which yeah. is a scene with scarlett johansson uh but aside from that like 
this dude does. I mean, he is stoic and just yeah. reserved. Um, you know, I, I think like, let me find my, okay, here it is. So yeah, I, I had some notes about Billy Bob. I'm going to jump in here with this, uh, just so yeah, we yeah. can talk about this. But, uh, the thing I love about him is his reservedness here because you get this awesome voiceover that was so well written, um, like almost on that taxi driver level. Again, they're very different, but, uh, like just that very thoughtful, thoughtful, old kind of pulp, uh, mm -hmm semi-stylized, semi-realistic kind of uh, thing. But he, what's funny is he has the perfect voice for this, like, intentionally lackluster character. Yes. Because <laughs> you, you have a protagonist who is boring, this guy, uh -huh. right? All he does is chain smokes and cuts hair. And uh -huh. he's just, even when he talks to people, you just want to go to sleep. because he's And yeah. that's what he's supposed to be. I mean, it, it's great. But I'm just saying, uh -huh. like... That's what he's supposed to be. But he's also our vehicle to a much more interesting world that he is in, and we see everything through his eyes. So everything yes. that we see and then all of the voiceover really kind of develops his character to where he is probably the, the most developed character in the film, but it's only yeah. because of these things. And it's like, wow. I mean, not yeah. very many movies do voiceover this well, dude. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and keeping in mind, too... Um, maybe the reason why he is such a lackluster character in a lot of ways is because of the perspective, the, the narration, you know, is, is an indicator that he's the one telling this story and, you know, a, a lack of self-awareness to a degree is pretty common among people of this type. And um, that's, I think that's what a lot of that is, is a function of his own lack of uh, self-awareness. He's talking about everyone else, but he's not talking about himself all that much. Although, the story is about him. He's not getting into details of himself because he's telling someone, telling us a story about the world. You yeah. know, the, the world is what's kind of, you know, coming down upon him in this movie. And um, well, he, although there's, there is a great sort of, there, there's a great sort of watching this movie um, from, you know, from this outside perspective where you're like, well, yeah, you're kind of bringing this on yourself. Um, and, and I might get into this a little bit earlier, but um, this is another one I watched with my girlfriend. We need to bring her on sometime because she has amazing insights and not the least of which in this was, I didn't feel bad for um, for Ed's character at all because he was a bad person. Although, you know, th these are like all of these things that happened are things that he could have stopped at any time with a little bit of forethought, but instead the self his self-serving nature kind of stopped that, you know, kind of prevented him from being able to do that. Yeah. He's, he is actually a very complex character as well. Uh -huh. Because, man, I, I'm, I'm choosing my words wisely. <laughs> sorry. So I, uh, sorry yeah, for the pause. Yeah. I'm just trying to think of how I want to say this. Yeah. He, so the Coens are really playing with ideas uh, like of, of morality, but also culture. So yes. a lot of people would justify what Billy Bob Thornton's character does uh -huh. because of what happens to him from the people closest to him. Do you understand yes. what I'm saying? The predicaments yes. that the people he that he's closest to, the predicaments uh -huh. they're in, he could stop, yeah. but he chooses not to. But most people would right. say, yeah, fuck those people. They're terrible, right? Because of, the, right. of their sins, so to speak, right? But then at the same time, 
there is a comeuppance of sorts by the end, and you get what I'm saying. Yeah. Yes. And it's almost it's unjust. Mm-hmm. But in but some strange not. way, it's kind of just. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a roundabout yeah. way. So again, back to this writing. Uh-huh. It's not that it's this spectacular plot. I mean, we've seen this type of thing before and probably yeah, at a much quicker some. pace. And I love the mm-hmm. pacing of this. We'll get to that. But a lot of people think it's a snooze, like it's too slow. But no, the no, thing, I like, like, but man, dude, I love the writing because there's always that clash of morality versus... Uh, versus kind of like cultural appropriateness or something yeah. or acceptance, you know? Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think a lot of people would just almost like kind of revel in like, oh, yeah, he got he got him back, right? Like, right. you know, um, I don't know. Or like, or even whenever James Gandolfini's Big Dave gets murdered, yeah, I'm sure they're just like, yeah, fuck that guy. Like, he's a right. cheater. Kill that guy, you know, yeah. murderer. And... Um, I don't know. It's just, it's very interesting. But also, going back to Billy Bob Thornton's character, he's also, you, you were mentioning, and I love that insight of, uh, like, he's telling the story, so you're not getting a ton of his character outside of seeing him interact with these people and uh, the voiceover, but he's, he really is just a spectator. We often see him watching things happen. You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? Uh, yeah. so, you know, he's, he's just observing a lot. And even whenever he's asked a question, his answers are very sparse and they're very, yeah. very, uh, simple. And so, um, it's just so interesting to me to have a protagonist that is this, like I'm doing air quotes, boring. You know what I mean? Like yeah. he doesn't really, he is literally just a vehicle for us to get from scene to scene. Uh, yes. but he's like so vitally important. So I love, love that. Um, Let's see what else. Uh, oh, so I, I want to jump into kind of a big thing. It's a super uh-huh. 180, but I want to make sure we get to it before uh, we run out of time here. I mean, we we still yeah. have time, but I want to make sure we get to this because, like, when I first saw this, I felt really weird about the birdie sequence. Okay, yeah. so birdie yeah. is played oh. by a very young uh, Scarlett Johansson, mm-hmm. and uh, this film came out in 2001. So this is long before. I mean, she did. Uh, Oh my God! How do how do I for, I forget the the movies that I like? Uh-huh. Oh God, this is gonna kill Hold me. On. Hold on, I'm looking it up right now. Ghost World, <laughs> Jesus Christ! Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ghost World came out the same year, so Ghost World was kind of a, a breakout for her. And uh, you know, she had done some stuff in the '90s, but uh, nothing nothing crazy. She was in like Home Alone three, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and stuff yeah. like that. But then she was in the man who wasn't there and then ghost world. So this is like right before those. And then of course, lost in translation kind of put her mm-hmm. on the map for sure. A couple years later. And then she started yeah. like growing up to be black widow basically. And yeah. Uh, so yeah, you have a very young uh, Scarlett Johansson. I remember her talking a lot about being self-conscious about her voice because she always had yeah. like a deep voice for a, a young teenage girl, you know. But yeah. anyways, so she plays Birdie, and uh, there's a point where Birdie and Ed get very close, and I don't mean in a, like a sexual way. I just mean like they become close, and I think yeah. some people could get the wrong idea. I want to give my thoughts, and I want to pass it off to you because I actually think this is a hang-up some people could have because it is weird. I, I mean, even with my interpretation of it it's still it's just like the whole thing's weird but i like also love it um but anyways you know ed has nothing he was in a loveless marriage and then whenever all this stuff goes down 
you know, the people closest to him, all this shit is just crazy in his life. It's got to be stressful, but you'd never know it behind his chain smoking. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and uh, just like all these money problems and the barbershops being threatened to close. And he's got all this weight on him. And his one escape is listening to Birdie play music. And we get this really early on. Uh, because she's also kind of an outsider, at least in his view at first, uh, as we see at the party when they when they uh, whenever uh, Big Dave and um, Doris, uh, they're at this party for their company and uh, Ed's there just to accompany Doris. But she goes off and does her own thing. And he's just walking around, you know, the store that they work at. I forget what it's called, yeah. now, but. Uh, and he's walking around, he, he hears music, so he follows it, and he finds this teenage girl who also got away from the party because she didn't really, that just wasn't her. She's just playing on this piano, and they just kind of, like, connect in this moment. Again, it's nothing sexual. It's just, like, there's yeah. clearly more to this. But then as they continue, and as shit gets a lot worse for Ed, <laughs> you know, yes. um, he starts visiting Birdie's house all the time. Now, he's friends with her dad as well. Because her dad yes. comes in to get haircuts. He's a, an alcoholic lawyer, basically. Yeah. And so, you know, you get... Uh, not only does he think she's super talented, he sincerely does, but also she is like this escape for him. Because, you know, her dad is an alcoholic. Ed finds something, or in this case, someone, to support and look after. So he has a. she gives him kind of a purpose in life. Even when you have the moment, and this is the moment where I could see some people interpreting this different, whenever she's yeah. talking to a young man after her piano recital, and Ed yes. walks up, and it's very awkward. Yeah. And I've chosen to interpret this more as, like, a fatherly figure. Like, yeah. hey, like, you yeah. better not mess with her. But I could also <laughs> see someone else being weird about it and being like, oh, he's jealous of this boy. I just yeah. don't take it that way. Um, yeah. But I could, it is weird though. Uh, so, anyways, I, I love this relationship, but it does end in a very strange, <laughs> yes. uh, touchy, kind of tender way. And I don't mean mm -hmm. tender in a good way. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes, not at all. And it's just, it's kind of the greatest, too. <laughs> yeah. It's such a great line, too. You know? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Uh, so what what were your thoughts of kind of this relationship? Because I feel like if people watch it not knowing about this, some people may misinterpret what this is doing. And I think it's actually a lot more simple. I think this is much more a tool to develop Billy Bob Thornton's character and less about any kind of the weirdness that one might interpret. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think the, the thing of it, um, the, the, the point of it is that it comes off as weird, but it didn't until the point where, I mean, I, it, it kind of struck me as weird that he's going up in to, you know, he's like going to visit ostensibly to listen to her play the piano and her dad knows about this and just allows it he's you know like she doesn't nobody seems to think there's anything weird about it um and then it, it's again and this is again kind of this this cohen flipping cohen brothers flipping this stuff on us where we're kind of you know you, you kind of sit there and think this is kind of awkward and weird but it's also not and then at the end it's like no it's pretty weird <laughs> 
And in, in the end, it's it's even a little weirder than maybe you would think. Um, but no, I, it, I, dude, I, it takes a sharp turn. Yeah, and it's it's bizarre. Um, and it, it's almost I don't I don't know. It, it's you could look at it. I don't know. You could look at it as kind of a victim blaming kind of thing. There's a lot, you know, we don't want to go into it. Obviously it's, you know, this is definitely a spoiler territory, but it's, it's different. It's, it's done differently. And I, I don't know that we even really have time to, you know, in, in that context of the movie to, yeah. to yeah. consider it. But um, that, that one scene to me was, was really cool because I didn't. I'm talking didn't about the car it, scene. Well, there's the car scene. That was, that's the one that I'm talking about, but. Yeah. But now, but then circling back to the scene with the boy, yeah, I didn't even, I didn't even really sense a whole lot of him like being even necessarily like looking on him with suspicion. He was just kind of like, okay, well, all right, well, you're a boy, obviously, she's a normal girl, and you know, this boy is her age, and maybe they're gonna, you know, he's like, okay, well, and then he's like, all right, well, you know, see ya. He just kind of turns around and walks off. And it was it was awkward, but it was also it was almost more awkward in, its, in the sense of like who is this guy than anything else. I I didn't sense like that he was jealous of the kid, but he was like you know she's mine. You get away from her. You know it was kind of like okay, well great. She's That's got a boyfriend. Yeah. yeah. And, See, I and did I just, take it a little weird. I did. Uh, I, I did think there was something going on personally. I'd be curious uh, to see what listeners interpret that because I don't yeah, think you're yeah, wrong. I, I just yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, it just it just didn't strike me that way when I watched it because, you know, he didn't. I, I didn't think of him getting angry. I kind of thought maybe he would because then I'm because that was kind of a moment for me where I'm like, yeah, this is a, a strange and potentially inappropriate relationship. And oh, here's a boy. How is he going to react? And he was very just nonplussed by it. Although to be fair, you know, early in the film he finds he suspects slash finds out that his wife is having an affair with him with her boss, and he's much the same. In terms of he's just yeah. nonplussed about it all. <laughs> yeah. He's like, ah, what can you do? You know, he's the most um, blank slate I've ever seen in a character. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was like, oh, oh yeah, my wife's banging her boss. Huh. What can you do? You know, and he just kind of moves on, and it's like, no, there's a lot you can do. You know, but um, but it's you know, it's 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 a bizarre relationship. Um, one that as it as the movie goes along, you're not necessarily looking at as a key relationship in the film. But then at the end, you know, you see, obviously it, it comes into play and yeah. it's not a, it's not what I'd call an out of nowhere kind of I mean, thing. It's, it's, it's to develop uh, Ed and it's also a plot device to get from point A to point B. Let's just face yes. it. Like that's, that's pretty much it, man. <laughs> yes. yeah. And, yeah. And, and, you know, uh, Birdie could have been anyone, you know, honestly, and yeah. narratively, she could have been an adult woman. She could have been a boy. She could have been an adult man. You know, it, it could have just been anything. Um, but that fact that, you know, that she's sort of a teenage girl kind of gives it that that un, unavoidable weirdness. So, yeah. um, you know, no matter what the the intention of it was. So yeah. um, and, and it's kind of a it's kind of a fun little stroke by the Coens, I think. There's another thing I want to bring up real quick, because I have I, I want to talk about the performances. I want to talk about Deacon's camera work before we close up. But before I get there, I'm going to yeah. also again. Because I literally, this is the one thing in the film I can't put my finger on. I don't really know exactly what it's going for. I can come up with my own theories, but I don't necessarily buy into any of them fully. So I'm curious if uh -huh. you have anything to say. There is a very literal UFO in this film. 
Yes. And and throughout the film, there are like there are like newspapers talking about people sighting UFOs. And, you know, there are these like there's a hubcap at one point that's spinning and eventually it kind of just like forms into what looks like a UFO and flies off. Uh, yeah. And you have these like weird things, and none of the things I just said are big plot points or, or mm-hmm. are, are meant to be anything other than what they are. Like the hubcap thing is just like a transition more than anything. Yeah. It's not meant to be a literal UFO. Uh, yeah. But there is a point toward the end of the film. Again, no spoiler because uh-huh. I don't even know what this means, so I can't like I couldn't yeah. spoil it for you. Uh, but there's a UFO in this movie, Joe, and this is yes. the, the closest thing to a spoiler I'm going to get to. Do you uh-huh. have any thoughts about this? Because I really, I don't care about. I think it's just a funny, cool thing. Like, like yeah. it's fine. But I also uh-huh. do really strive to look for purpose in things. I think it's part of the yeah. reason why I gravitate so much toward Kubrick because I can literally look at every frame and see the intentional nature of his filmmaking. Yeah. So, like, I get it. But this is one of those things where sometimes I get hung up, not necessarily in a negative way, but mm-hmm. I get hung up on something because, like, yeah. I can't figure out the intent. You have any thoughts about this UFO? Scene? Yeah, yeah. I, I want to. I and I'm kind of talking through it because I, I don't even know. I, I guess it's because it comes out of nowhere from the perspective of the movie is I don't know. We're what a quarter of the way through the movie, close to halfway through the movie, and and Ed gets a knock on the door, and it's Big Dave's wife who is you know mourning, and she and she you know there's. Uh, and again, I, I don't even want to get into there because there's a whole other aspect of this film. There's um, the, you know, who did this murder yeah. and uh, you know, and you know, the it's, you know, who actually, we, we know who actually did it and then we know who gets pinned for it. Yeah. And yeah. so, uh, but then there are also other murders yes. in the movie that I don't want to talk about. So we'll stay away, but it's like, there are other yeah. murders and who did those things Right. I mean, it gets really. There's a lot of yeah going there's on. There's a lot of moving parts yeah. there, but but the 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 kind of the, my point here is that you know Big Dave's wife comes and and says to Ed, "I know what really happened, and it's that they killed him because we know about these aliens because we were in Roswell." She didn't say Roswell, but later on he's reading a a Life magazine and there's a, a reference to Roswell, and uh, she you know she says you know we were camping but she says we were camping in eugene oregon yeah and there was you know we were out in the middle of nowhere and then there this ship the spacecraft landed and we saw the creatures and it, you're just like what the hell <laughs> yeah and and then from there you know like you know like you said later on we get that transition to the hubcap which is clearly an illusion um to you know to a, a flying saucer kind of thing uh, and then and then there's more you know as you, as you said it kind of goes along and there's a lot of that kind of nature of, you know, this, this is a dream, this is a hallucination, or is this real, and why? <laughs> and the only thing I can really think of is this this idea of something, because society, you know, society um, and society's injustices through the justice system is is a big part of the movie. Yeah. Um, you know, and and you know this this big thing that that you can't control but is very obviously inept and, and strange. Um, you know, that this is, you know, this is the theme of the movie. So that I kind of look at the the UFO, the, the the spaceship stuff as an extension of that, as something larger than than them that is in some way affecting this, but 
you know, ultimately it's not that important, which is kind yeah. of strange to me. Yeah, it, it's, it's not that it's, important to the plot. Yeah, it's bizarre. And if any of you watched the Fargo TV series in season three, there's a UFO in it. And it's clearly sure. a th- kind of throwback to this film, which, again, I don't think that many people, unless they were going through the Cohen's filmography or something, have watched yeah. this, which is kind of a bummer. I mean, it's been on Netflix and stuff. I've seen it before, but I just yeah. don't. Why would it stand out to anyone if they didn't know it was a Coen Brothers movie kind of a thing? Uh, but man, the justice system thing's real. I actually picked up on that. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because I forgot to put that yeah. in my notes, but I just wrote it down just to make sure I didn't forget. Um, yeah, this really illuminates like a lot of problems with our justice system and how it's basically a game. You know what I mean? It's it's a game, and someone's going to win the game, and it's less about you know uh, who did right and who did wrong. It's less about the the moral system or um, you know. Uh, basically uh it's not about who done it it's about who's better at this game is basically what yes. i'm getting at in a long-winded yeah. way and yeah that that's really great actually and of course it's a, it's kind of a sub point like it's uh-huh. it's it's not something that they're focused on but you see this from beginning to end you know how this yes. plays out and and how the justice system really plays in the favor of the of the plot of this film um yes but i want i want to move uh there, well, there, there's uh, sorry, just to close that out yeah, before, ahead. you know, there, there's a lot of moments in that movie that where you just go, that doesn't really make much sense, you know, from a legal perspective. Yeah. All you really have to say, and, you know, and I, I mentioned my girlfriend and I were watching that we're watching it. And, you know, there were so many times where we were just like, this is not really like there's there's a very easy out here. There's a very easy way to to defend this and to dismiss this. But that's but that's kind of the point of this is that, yeah, they they you know the the police officers in this case had to connect dots and they and they made a very loose connection in a couple of senses you know yeah. to to kind of string this along. But this is the point you know of where you know where you know where our job is to solve crimes and and you know when you look at the 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 even the the courtroom scenes there's the the um. And the you know the between the two lawyers, there's a, a very much a playing up of this guy, this person is this, and they're evil, and yeah. they're scheming, and they're doing this, and they're responsible. And then the very next scene, you know, in the courtroom, has it spinning the complete opposite way, and it's it's all this game and it's, it, it, it kind of makes me think I was watching that more than anything. And, and Tony Shalhoub's character is, is uh, the, the big high priced defense lawyer, fast talking kind of guy. Yeah. And he, what he is arriving at, you know, what he's looking for, isn't the truth. It's a way to get his client from serving jail time, from going to jail, you know, and it doesn't matter the the justice of it doesn't matter. It's the fact that, we're trying to catch somebody. We're trying to make somebody to blame. And then the other people are, the other side of that is just trying to get this person, keep them from being punished. And it, it's just this weird, it just kind of, if you look at it from that perspective, you're like, this is really an indictment of the justice system in a lot of ways. Yeah. And very, and very much so because it's, it reduces it to a game of who's a better debater, who's better at, who's better at, at making this argument that is backhanded and, you know, insincere and not at all truthful in painting somebody a certain way to get them punished for something maybe they did or maybe they didn't do. 
Yeah. So it's so that you know that's that's an important part of the movie too. Yeah, and it's also it's also kind of like this hyperbolic example of it because that would never be something that could hold up now. Yeah, but in the forties, maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know and, what I mean? And you, yeah, and if you watch a lot of those old noir movies, it's like somebody gets gets caught on something that's very circumstantial. Yeah. You know, and and it's like, oh, this is the big tragedy, and it's like, well, I mean, today no one would even think of that as something that would really get you hooked. But, yeah. you know, it's, it, it's still, you know, it, the, the, the point it's making is, is very valid, you know, and, and that, that's, you know, all of that is even part of it, you know, it's part of the point that um, even though you're, you know, you think, Oh no, well, as obviously is this, it's like, right. But we're still going to go, we're going to still go with this. Yeah. And, and it yeah. doesn't, and it, you look at cases in more recent years even, and it doesn't, you know, it kind of tracks with all that. So, it's hard to argue against it even. Yeah, absolutely. I want to move on though to uh, pacing real quick. Um, I was reading an, uh, I think a review or an article of the film, I forget. And they were talking about when they saw this film at the Cannes Film Festival in 2001, when this film came out. And when they walked out, uh, they didn't know how to feel about it. And they now, like whenever they actually did the review, they had watched it again and felt differently. But when they first came out of it, they didn't know how to feel. And uh, they asked a another journalist that had walked out too, and they said, "Yeah, this feels like a ninety-minute movie that ran for two hours." And yeah. when I read that, I was like, "Damn! Like, I just don't agree with that. Like, I yeah, I, I actually think the pacing feels perfect for this movie because mm-hmm. it's not No Country for Old Men or Raising Arizona." or any of those like this movie's allowed to breathe. And since we're developing the main character through voiceover, I don't think this film actually ever stops. Like there's never a lull in my view, because whenever it's quiet and there's this again, back to Deacons, this beautiful camera work. Now this is a movie I would say can be a little showy at times where it's just gorgeous in black and white, in my opinion. But, uh, but yeah, you get like, it's all voiceover over those sequences usually. <laughs> and yeah, there yes. are, there are many quiet conversations between Ed and other characters, you know, where it like, like, uh, like big Dave's uh, widow. Yes. You know, like, Anne. when Anne and Ed are talking on the porch, that's a very slow, uh, like there's not a lot of dialogue going on. It's a lot of them kind of looking at each other because Anne's being weird and Ed's Ed. Um, And, you know, they're like kind of talking to each other because there's a point where they just stare at each other for what feels like 10 seconds. And finally he goes, (laughs) what can I do for you, Anne? (laughs) Like (laughs) staring at him like a creep, you know? But what's great about that scene even is it's lit like a Twilight Zone episode or something to me. Like, it just looks awesome, Uh you know? Absolutely. Um, So anyways, uh, yeah, I just, I really love the pacing. That's actually the thing that I fell in love with the first time I saw it is, like, just how how moderately paced. Some would call Mm -hmm. it a slow burn, but I don't, I just don't feel the slowness. I feel like it's a moderately paced. It's definitely not quick. Uh, But when you watch it, it's, again, we're looking at a character who is very quiet and mm-hmm. every sense of the word, he's very slow. <laughs> like, yeah. And I don't mean mentally. I mean, like, in person. Like, he's not in a yes. rush to get anywhere ever. Uh, yes. When he's cutting hair, it's very methodical. And you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's yeah. like, of course the movie's paced that way. We're seeing it through the eyes of someone whose brain is paced this way. 
I think yeah. it's just perfect. Now, now, what I just said doesn't make it good, but I'm just saying like it at least makes sense. And on a personal level, I love it. Did you, by the way you're reacting, I'm assuming you agree, but where did you fall with the pacing? Because that's been a hiccup for some people. Yeah, I, I really like the pacing, and I, and I don't even think it's slow. I think it's it's a movie like Fargo that that uses it interjects some some kind of key quirky off the wall kind of humor moments to to kind of buffer that a little bit and i was i was there was never a moment where i was like this movie really needs to end now i was i was right along with it the whole time dude i agree and 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 there is a lot of kind of under the under the wire kind of kind of humor like that just kind of funny moments that stuff with with ann on the porch you know where he's just like what can i do for you uh, you know would you like to come inside and and she's just like no 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 it's okay and then she like unleashes this nutty thing about about aliens and he's just like and would you like to come inside <laughs> yeah. it's just like because she's getting emotional yeah yeah and there's just all of these little moments like that tony shalhoub's character you know again is one of those guys that that comes in and he's it's like he doesn't belong in the movie paced the way that this movie is paced on the surface and but his you know the way he's he's fast talking and he's coming through and he's like boom you know he's just like boom boom hey and he like orders all this stuff and he's like and bring me a fruit cocktail while i'm waiting and you're just like what is going on with him dude. and, but, and like, back to of, well back to character development dude shaloub's character uh, in this mm -hmm. in this movie full of slow talkers basically big dave yeah. was that's not fair actually everyone except for ed's pretty much pretty you know boisterous but the film moderately paced then tony shaloub comes in and ruin like wrecks it all because yeah. he sits down, he's like, I'd like a steak. I want it between medium rare and rare. I want it, you know, like, you know, like yeah. he's, he's, he's like so meticulous. So back to through actions, mm -hmm. how are you developing these characters? And they develop yeah. characters so quickly. You know exactly mm -hmm. who Tony Shalhoub's character is after yeah. the first introduction. You have mm -hmm. no question how he would respond to different scenarios and, you know, you have no question how he would respond if the food does not come back exactly how he, <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean? Like you, you just immediately pick up on this and it's all again, back to the Coen's uh, uncanny ability to write characters and, and put them in a setting where they can thrive. And I think Tony Shalhoub is a natural with the Coen's, even though he's really not in, I can't remember if he's in any others. I'll look that up. Um, but yeah. uh, yeah, I, I, I just think he is an absolute gem in this, so I'm so yeah. glad that you uh, that you brought him up. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I do want to just say real quick the Deacon's camera work, Roger Deacon's camera work is uh, just really, really great here. I think because it is still reserved, but it's it's a lot of slow movement. You know what I mean? A lot of panning up yes. or panning to the right. Or, uh, you know, slow kind of dolly shots moving back and forth, but also just the way things are lit in black and white. Lighting black and white is very different than lighting color because, you know, whenever you take out the color, you have to still be able to pick out and define all of these different characteristics. And he does it with what looks like such ease. And what's great is it looks as good as like a Criterion Collection version of like a 50s yes. film noir. Mm -hmm. where it's not just stark black and white, but it's grayscale. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. you can see all yeah. the shades of gray and, and at times it, I don't know, dude, I'm a, I'm a sucker for really 
like high definition black and white. So like, yes. like yes. I really love like restorations of old movies and being able to see all the details, you know, uh, both from that time and just like in the film to pick out things. Uh, did, did the camera work or, or, or the way the film looks in general stand out to you in any way in particular, or was it just kind of good? No, the, the, no, the look was, I thought the look of the film was, was tremendous and filming in black and white was wonderful. Um, and yeah, and it, it just, it added all of this extra elements, all the shadows and, you know, the, it was magnificent. Um, it, you know, and there's so many scenes, the courtroom scenes, especially, and, um, the, the scenes in, um, Big Dave's office, uh, the kind so of the, the one key scene is just amazing. And, um, it, yeah, it, I thought it was outstanding, and and it really it really brought a lot to the to the movie. And you know, it, it's it's kind of a thing watching a modern movie, and it's in black and white. And I kind of have this tendency to kind of roll my eyes when I start. I'm like, oh, great, oh, it's in black and white. It's a modern movie. It's a, okay, but it works here a lot of in a lot of ways because of the the period that it's in. Um, but um, it, it very much feels like the right choice here. And, and I really applaud kind of that choice uh, to, to do it that way. So um, yeah, it's, it's a very nice looking movie. So um, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, I, and, and then I'm going to go, and I did go through, I did a quick scan. Me too. Um, Tony Shalhoub <laughs> was also in um, uh, Barton, Barton Fink. Fink. Yeah. 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 I didn't see any other Coen brothers movies. Honestly. No, but um, the, the, the only things he's really known for outside of Monk is uh-huh. uh, Galaxy Quest um, uh-huh. and Men in Black outside of these yeah. Cone Brothers? I mean, everything yeah. he's in a lot of other stuff, but he's. Yeah. I mean, nothing. I know him from. I knew him from Wings way back in oh, the day. Oh yeah, he, me too. He's in the Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. He's amazing in that. Um, if you haven't watched that, you definitely need to check that out. He's I have tremendous in it. Wait, what? Hold on. He <laughs> was in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. He played Splinter. Yeah, and the the newer version. What I in the hell? Yeah. Even yeah, though that been, movie probably sucks, I haven't seen it. Uh, oh, it was terrible. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty cool there, that there's he's a moment splinter, where, <laughs> th- Yeah, there, there's a moment where his Splinter character, like, almost kills one of the turtles, like, in, like in this moment of, like, complete cruelty. He almost, like, kills, like, strangles them or something. I can't remember. It was, like, very, very bad. <laughs> I was just like, what the hell is Splinter, Master Splinter doing? He's, he was, like, kicking the crap out of one of them, like, choking him to death or something. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, those aren't, those aren't good movies. <laughs> well, uh, I mean, uh, just to sum up my feelings and then I'll give you a chance to kind of sum up your feelings on the, on this. Uh, like I said, when I first saw this movie, I didn't know anybody who had seen it. Uh, even my close friends who were huge movie geeks, like even if they'd at least heard of it, they hadn't watched it yet. So yeah. I was like the first in my group to see the man who wasn't there. Mm-hmm. And uh, I didn't know who Roger Deakins was at the time. I didn't know who most of these actors were outside of Coen Brothers movies or maybe a handful of others, like Wings. Yeah. Like Tony Shalhoub, all I knew him from was Wings, yeah. and I didn't even remember yeah. him from Men in Black at the time So because yeah. uh, yeah. he plays one of the aliens in that. So, uh, yeah, I it was one of those movies that there was no star power for me personally because, again, it wasn't like a Nick Cage or a Sean yeah. Connery or something. like. I don't know, people that I was yeah. into before then, Jim Carrey people or something. The Rock. <laughs> That's exactly what I was doing, but yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, I, you know, uh, I knew Scarlett Johansson from uh, Ghost World because I'd seen Ghost World by that point. Both of these films were out by then. Um, I knew James Gandolfini from Sopranos, Mm -hmm. um, which he basically, I mean, this, his character in this is not that different 
It's like if the Coen brothers directed Tony Soprano and he wasn't a mob boss. Yeah. It's kind of Big Dave. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's not, you know, it's not like, like, he even talks like him. You yeah, know, exactly. Maybe just a Gandolfini thing, but um, it come, yeah, it, it came off that way in the end that he was a normal guy. And then as his character progresses, he's almost a, he's almost a Tony Soprano type. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, but then, you know, now having rewatched it, you know, at the time, it was just a five-star movie to me. And like I said, mm-hmm. I think part of it was because I'd found this gym that I mm-hmm. loved that no one else had seen. So I might have put, like, a heavier weight on it. Um, mm-hmm. But then, you know, learning who Roger Deakins was over the years and now being able to rewatch it and see the flair that he can add to it. And um, I think the pacing is perfect. I think every performance is spot on. I mean, this it just kind of goes on and on. I can say a lot of the same things I said about Fargo, though I would not put this on Fargo's level. Um, yeah. But it would probably be in my easily in my top 10 favorites of the Coens. I don't know if it quite makes the top five. So it'd be in that six yeah. through 10 somewhere. Uh, but yeah. I really, really love this movie a lot. I encourage people mm-hmm. to go check it out. This is another one that I don't think streaming anywhere, so you'd have to rent this also. But if you haven't seen it, trust me when I say we did not like really spoil anything of note. Like You should no. go check it out. I'm also very happy that we brought up the birdie sequence and the UFO sequence. So mm-hmm. you kind of just know what's coming because, quite frankly, when I first saw it, the only thing I got hung up on was the UFO because I couldn't figure out why it was there. And it's like yeah. overthought it so much. Don't overthink it, folks. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Just yeah, don't yeah, overthink cool. it. But of course, yeah. Francis McDormand, as always, is so great. Dude, yeah. I'll, I'll say this. There is a great scene. And I'll end on this. There is a, I mean, this scene has so much going on, going back to just full circle, back to the Coens being such great writers, knowing how to put a mm-hmm. scene together, knowing how to direct actors so you could really hit these home. Francis McDormand, again, another regular, of course, you know, she there's a scene where uh, Doris and Ed, she plays Doris, of course, where Doris and Ed are talking uh, to Tony Shalhoub's lawyer, okay? Mm-hmm. And uh, they start recounting the events of a certain scenario that happened in their life, yes. right? And uh-huh. so they're recounting the events, and Doris is explaining how she perceives this event, but... Ed starts explaining how he perceives the event, and we as the audience know that Ed is right, but no one else does. Mm-hmm. You're following me, Joe? Yes. So, yes. but here's the crazy thing. When Tony Shalhoub's lawyer is hearing Ed's story, he thinks it's a crock of bullshit. Right. Because it doesn't make sense to him. Yeah. Doris realizes mm-hmm. what happened yeah. In the scenario they're discussing, because mm-hmm. of how detailed and because of how it all kind of makes the pieces fit together. Because her story yeah. was was messy, and it had pieces missing because she couldn't put it together. As soon as Ed starts talking, she goes, oh, shit. Like, yeah. Ed knows what happened. Mm-hmm. And you also then have Ed doing something, in many ways, for Doris. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. this scene is so complex in terms of if you really think about what each character in this scene, the three people are doing, their motivations for doing it, what it means for each character, and and also just developing the plot further, right? Like this is masterful writing. 
And it's just a great example of how everything in that scene, uh, including the lighting, because they're just in this big concrete room. <laughs> like, yes. It's just a big concrete room with a big table. Tony Shalhoub is walking in and out of this this massive yeah. light. For some reason, mm-hmm. there's just this like giant light shooting down <laughs> in a very like specific pattern. You know, like it's mm-hmm. fucking uh, um, Blade Runner or something. You know, <laughs> like, yeah. like it looks like some futuristic room or something. Uh-huh. But anyways, they're sitting in here, and it's just that scene. Like everything hits every time I watch that sequence. It always makes me like feel something because. Like, there's just so much going on. So just to sum up my feelings about it, it's like this just hits on all levels. Um, Mm -hmm. And honestly, I can't really – I wouldn't use the term perfect with this, but I can't really tell you many criticisms I have because I honestly do just love this movie from beginning to end. And uh, I do think it is a – I will use the term perfect in saying that it's a perfect example of the Cohen of the Cohens knowing what to do and how to do it. Yes. Um, and I just yeah. I just think this is such a gem. Joe, why don't you finish this up here and let us know your kind of final thoughts on the man who wasn't there? Yeah, yeah. I again really enjoyed this movie. Um, this this fits into the the Cohens over their filmography, whatever the word is. Um, their oeuvre. Their oeuvre. There you go. Um, and it's it's all the you know it's. It has all their hallmarks. It's not, you know, it, it doesn't reach the heights of some of the some of my favorites of theirs. But it also is not. It's it's a movie that's eminently enjoyable. Um, it has a lot of charms to it, and a, a lot of you know a lot of things that make it worth taking the time to see if you have not. And and as you've seen, this is this is one that I this was a blind spot for me. Um, you know that I I hadn't seen, so I'm I'm certainly glad that I got to plug that hole. Um, and and check this out because it's it, it contributes a lot to their you know to their overall uh their overall filmography so let's um you know i i applaud it for that for sure yeah um i yeah i i don't again i don't have anything bad to say about it maybe the you know the the ufo thing is distracting and is not it's it doesn't it's not necessarily it it feels tacked on compared to the rest of it you know so that's maybe the closest thing to a to a, a complaint I can have um, uh, for the, the movie is that it kind of it meanders off a touch here and there. I think the birdie stuff meanders just a little bit, Agreed. and then that meanders just a little bit. Um, but it's not again; it's 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 still eminently enjoyable and and certainly worth a watch. I think the two things you mentioned is the two things. The reason I wanted to bring them up is because mm-hmm. I think the birdie and the UFO thing can be distracting. Yeah, and that's mm-hmm. the. I think if I had to give, I guess, a criticism, even though I love, I think they're, I think they're great. Mm-hmm. They don't bother me, but yeah. yeah, I agree with you. That's spot on. Uh, yeah. Do you have anything you want to leave us off with? I mean, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of things. There's a lot of things in this movie that we didn't get to mention, um, but I, I do just want to talk about how much all of this is just a craft detail. So that. <laughs> That's all you got, that's Joe. Line, that was the big line that made me laugh in that movie. Um, and it, it involves a couple of cops visiting um, Ed and dropping a very a very bad piece of news on him. And they're, the most they can come up with is is complaining that they have to be the one to do it. And and the, the one cop turns away and just like, 
this is such a crap detail. And, and then he proceeds to tell him, you know, and then, he's, then he turns again after he's done. He's like, so yeah, so there you go, chief. There's some, there's some news. See you later. And he turns around. He's like crap detail. That, that, <laughs> that's all you got with that stupid fucking uniform, huh, buddy? <laughs> yeah. King clip on tie there. Big fucking man, huh? I'll do it this well, way. <laughs> well, all right. Well, well, here, I'll go with this. My wife and I had not performed the sex, the sex act in many years. That was the other one that I loved. <laughs> Dude, that's such a great scene. Anyways, all right, we're out yeah. of here. Dude, thank you so much. 50th episode, Joe. We did it. Nice. In the can. All right, that was our show. Thanks to Joe for coming back and talking about the Coen Brothers with me. Uh, again, sorry I couldn't get more solo stuff in, but quite frankly, we're already far enough into this episode. I'm sure you're fine with that. So next week, we're going to cover uh, Pedro Almodovar's Bad Education. I'm going to talk about uh, that movie that our friend Nick Peticcio sent us, uh, The Beast of War. We're also going to have Greg Sorvik from Heartland Film Festival and a billion other places. He's an awesome dude. Looking forward to having a conversation with him. I've actually never had a conversation with them off of like Facebook Messenger. All right, so we're, we're like friends on Facebook, um, but he seems like a really great dude. Excited to talk with him. I think that would be a fun time. Uh, so definitely come back next week and check that out. Hopefully you liked our Coen Brothers talk. I thought Joe and I had a pretty fun conversation here. And um, also, I hope you enjoyed my talk on Malignant. And if you haven't seen it, definitely go check it out. And then let me know what you think, because I am interested. Um, hopefully I can get all this car shit figured out so I can drive around again because I love driving and I would like to do that like to work for example or to the grocery store uh, so hopefully that will happen soon what else can we talk about now hmm nothing I guess well I guess I'll just have to leave off then uh, love you guys seriously thank you so much for listening good night good luck take it easy